Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to a monumental, epoch-making episode of Hey Kids Comics. Nearly four years ago, two northern chancers started an internet radio show to share their love of funny books. 200 episodes later, we're still doing it. And they said this wouldn't go the distance. But we said it wouldn't go the distance. <laughs> That is true, that is very true, that is what we said. Should we tell them what we're doing straight off the top of the show this week? No, I don't. Yeah, go on. No? No. Do you disagree with that? I do. Alright, do you want to... Let's tease in a little bit. We're going to tease it. Well, they're not going to look at the picture and go, Ah, they're doing that! Keep that a secret as well. So you don't want me to put the picture on the show. Is that all you want me to say as the preamble this week? Yeah, yeah. When I write the little writey bit for the show that nobody ever reads anyway, Yeah. I'm just going to write that. Yes. Does that other care and not yeah. say what we're covering? And the picture could be like... Uh, a question a, mark. A, a kind of like... A oh, the Riddler! Yeah. Could be Frank Gorshin. Or it could be a, a homage to the Superman shirt rip with a question mark on it. It could be. Yeah. It, indeed it could. Where, where would that be? Where would I find such a picture? I think Alex Ross did one. Did he? Yeah. Uh, maybe I will steal that off Alex Ross. <laughs> anyway, welcome to a very special episode. Not only because it's the 200th episode... And 200 is a pretty cool number. It is. 200, you know, should we rub our own lamp? Right. 200 yeah. episodes yeah. of a weekly show. Yeah. We have never missed a week. You've missed one week. Did I? Yeah. When we went to Florida, right. do you remember, I suddenly realised we were away for three Thursdays. Right. So I needed an episode down and dirty you, quick. You, you did the Royal Wedding one, didn't you? No, no, that was just me talking about winning Amazing Spider-Man 100 for oh, Dirt right. Cheap. Okay. That's an extra episode. It still right. counts as one of the 100s, but it wasn't a weekly one. That was a bonus episode. Okay. So it still counts, but you, right. yeah, you weren't on that one. I did that down and dirty Star Trek one. Uh, I wrote it, edited it, and recorded it in the morning. Right. It was only about 30 minutes, because I suddenly realised, wait a minute, I've miscalculated here. Which is a running thread it, it is. throughout the history of the show. I wouldn't be very surprised, no, in fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised to learn that this wasn't actually episode 200. Probably isn't. We're probably over, over... Like, well, I went with 150. Yeah, yeah. I was in 100 where I realised, wait a minute, yeah. I've counted wrong. So when we went to Florida, I, it, it had completely slipped my mind when I was working out the episodes that we were away for three Thursdays not two yeah so I needed another episode quick so I banged that one out quickly right and that's so as of now we have not missed a single week we've not we've not we no. even recorded in flo- foreign we lands we did we re- we've recorded in foreign lands we did yeah we've recorded in wacky places yeah we're, where's the wacky Universal Studios with Scott hi Scott <laughs> yeah I don't think Scott listens to this trouble but <laughs> we recorded in Universal Studios we recorded yeah. in Disneyland mm-hmm. we recorded eating 
funny American junk food. We did. In the wherever the foyer or the dining room or whatever of the villa we were staying in. I think, yeah, we said. Did we not record something by the pool? We might have done. I think we did something by the pool because that was great. But in every other respect, we're just an idiot. We've recorded stuff at Thought Bubble. We've recorded stuff walking home from the cinema. We've recorded stuff walking home from the cinema, yeah. We've recorded stuff at Bix. Yeah. We've had many and varied celebrity types contribute to the show by saying, you're listening to Hey Kids Comics. They didn't know what they were saying. But it didn't matter. Well, they didn't care, really. So that that was quite... So, you know, if you can't be self-indulgent in episode 200... When can you be self-indulgent? 300. You're right. I don't think we'll make 300. Do you not? No, well, you're gone next week. Next year. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Had this gone according to plan, and this was the last ever episode... Yeah. This You would have been gone next week. I would have. But as it is, you're going to be around for another year or so. Nine months at this point. Okay. So. <laughs> Unless you don't go to university. I think you should. Oh, man. Well, you don't screw up. Anyway, should we move on? Yes. Okay, one person, one, one, one person got in touch to ask us a question for the 200th episode. And that one person was the lovely Sam Savage, who we did meet. We did. At London, whatever it was. Film and Comic Con? Yes. Super Comic Con? I always mix them up. Don't you do. Yeah. Sam Facebooked us. We don't normally do Facebook questions on the show. No. I like email. Facebook, so I forget about it. You know, it's weeks before we record it, and yeah. I've forgotten about it. But Sam only just sent this, but me so minutes ago. It. So, of course, it's not even slipped my mind that quick. <laughs> and Sam said, Congratulations on 200. Well, we thank you very much, though. What episodes were you looking forward to recording most, and which ones changed your opinion on the material covered, if at all? Do you want to go first? Oh, uh, okay. All right. Which one were you looking forward to recording the most? All the ones I was looking forward to recording were the ones that I did. Of course. It wasn't like that. <laughs> so everything that you did, that's the one you were recording the most. Everything that I do, which is 99% of the show, <laughs> you don't give a toss about. No, 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 okay, maybe not everything that I did, but say the Grant Morrison episodes where I was proud of my synopsises and I was proud of the research and I was proud of the writing I did. And you were proud of the fact that you made sense of a lot of it. Yeah, so I was looking forward to, to doing those. Mm. So what was your favourite one for doing? Oh, for I don't know. What did you have the most fun doing? And maybe Final Crisis, or maybe even Flashpoint. Really? Not Metal Gear? Well, you just got to torture me for two weeks. Uh, Dad, you need to totally play this game. Yeah. And I'm just sat there going, this is infuriating! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one too. <laughs> And have you done any that have changed your opinion about the material? Yeah, there was one particular subject which I was not looking forward to all that much, but I probably enjoyed the most, and that was the Superman's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Superman! Yeah, all eighty weeks that we did all it. Eighty weeks, yeah. <laughs> I love doing that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I think happy birthday, Superman, may have been a high point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly the one I put the most effort into. In terms of pre and post production, yeah, I think because I mean you never heard the post production stuff, no. But there's clips and music and all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Happy birthday, Superman! Well, maybe I'll have to listen back to all 200 shows now. Yeah. Now that I know how to play at 1.5 on my phone, <laughs> oh, I'll to listen to them all. You wounded me, sir. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, Superman! Was a high point. What was I looking forward to recording the most? Happy birthday, Superman! Now that you've mentioned it, I thoroughly enjoyed doing them. I think. It gave me even more of an appreciation of the character's rich tapestry. Yeah. 
in in the comic book world and how he needs to be a little more appreciated by the current publishers and fans mm. because he was the first yeah. and in many ways he's the best and just reading that many of his adventures in such a compressed amount of time because I read an awful lot more than made the show mm. and it was one of the few times that I've just completely immersed myself in one character I mean those episodes only started coming out around February or March but over the three weeks that I was off for Christmas, I just had stacks of Superman books and Superman comics yeah. and novels, and I just immersed myself in the history of the character. Yeah. And I ended up liking him even more after I came out of that. I mean, I've always said my four favourite superheroes are Spider-Man, the Hulk, Batman and Superman. Hmm. And if I was going to rank them before Happy Birthday Superman, it probably would have been Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. And after Happy Birthday Superman, he easily eked his way up to position number two. Yeah. Because so much of that Golden Age stuff is brilliant. There's a part of me that likes a Superman that just chucks people out of windows. Yeah, well, to me, it wasn't about... It didn't make me think how he should be now. To me, it kind of... It was a good look at how he's changed. Mm, and and developed. Yeah, he's never a set thing. No. There's as many different Supermans as there are readers. Yeah. And there's plenty of material out there for you to go back and rediscover if the current version's not doing anything for you. Yeah. That being said, Jeff Johns and John Romita Jr.'s Superman, I think, is pretty damned entertaining. It's mm. the only new 52 book I've followed after Grant Morrison. I read the Grant Morrison run, which was infuriating and entertaining in equal measure. Yeah. So I do think at some point, maybe we should cover that at some point. We should yeah. read the whole thing as he intended it to be read. As a, a whole unit. So we'll start back at Animal Man then. And cover... No, just <laughs> action comics. None of the other stuff. Okay. Just action comics. But the one I was most looking forward to, bar none, was the Clone Saga. The Spider-Man Clone Saga. Because that... <laughs> I was so looking... Because I knew it was crazy. Yeah. And I knew it was totally out to lunch. And I knew all the retcons that came after it were equally crazy, if not more so. Mm. And having read them all again, more so is <laughs> definitely the way to go. So that was the one I was looking forward to the most easily. And how long did it take us to get to that? That was in the book, the little book that I have here. I think all you have to say is it was in the book. It was in the book from us, if not starting, certainly six months down the line of us starting. Yeah. And for some reason, I just kept putting it off and putting it off. And I don't know whether I just didn't feel we were ready for it yet or I didn't think that we could do it justice. Mm. But certainly, I, I hope that the sheer glee and joy and euphoria that <laughs> I, I experienced reading the retcon stuff came across in the show. Yeah. Because I adored every single minute of that just because of its, its insanity. Because it was one of those, if you just left it alone, yeah, nothing wouldn't have mattered. But the fact that they kept trying to fix it, and by fixing it, they made it much worse, <laughs> was just brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Do I want all of my comics to be like that? No way. <laughs> but for that one, for that series, for that collection, for that three-parter that we did, it was gloriously manic. Yeah. And insane, and I adored every minute of it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. So that was probably 
my ultimate favourite. But happy, happy birthday, Superman's very, very close mm. after that. Which one changed your opinion of the material? Um, you've made me think something was crapper than I thought it was before right. we read Secret Wars. Yeah. Being a prime example. I still think the three-part Secret Wars one was the first time... And this is very self-indulgent, lovely listeners, I do apologise. But it was the first time I think the show was what I wanted it to be. Right. We were covering something that I had fond nostalgic memories of that perhaps didn't hold up in the cold light of day. You were just gloriously snarky about that whole <laughs> thing because you were reading it going, this is Tosh of the highest order. And you didn't bother to hide the fact that you thought it was Tosh. But at the same time, I do think we brought a certain, or I did, reverence to its place in comics history. Yeah. And its importance in comics history. And I think it was also the first time we'd covered something that had gained this reputation. I mean, it was the first miniseries. I mean, it wasn't the first crossover. Mm. I would deny that from people who say it, because it doesn't cross over into any other books. It starts in other books, everyone disappearing. And then everyone reappears. Yeah. But the core 12-issue miniseries is a core 12-issue miniseries. That's all it is. And over the years, it has gained this, this certain cachet, hasn't it? Mm. And rereading it again, it's not that good. No, it's not. It isn't. And I think it's the first time we'd covered something, and ultimately we've covered a few things like that since, Avengers number four. Yeah. And Giant Size X-Men number one. These books that have achieved this level of popularity and because A, they introduced Wolverine or they brought back Captain America or it was the new X-Men or whatever that aren't actually that good story-wise. Mm. And I think Secret Wars was the first time that we covered that. In terms of actually changing my opinion for the better, it didn't really change my opinion of it because I hadn't read it, but I did think Seven Soldiers was bloody good. Yeah. I well, really was impressed with that as a piece of work. You've changed your mind about a lot of Grant Morrison and Frank Quitley stuff because of the show. Yeah, a lot of it, I'm going to be brutally honest, a lot of it was down to how he treated you. Yeah. And he was exceptionally nice to you. And more so than he was maybe to other people that were there. Mm. For whatever reason, he was exceedingly nice to you. Yeah. So there's a certain part of me now that can't dislike the man. Because he was good to my boy. Yeah. So from that point of view, I'm like, well, I can't dislike this guy because he was so nice to my child. He was made up to meet him. And he didn't disappoint you. Mm. You essentially have met your hero and he didn't let you down. That's incredibly rare. (laughs) And there's a part of me that thinks you shouldn't meet him again. Right. You shouldn't do that. You should just keep that perfect memory. Because you may meet him again, he may be rat ass. Because <laughs> let's be honest, he's probably not going to remember that. He won't remember that he met you. Yeah. How many people did he see that night? How many people has he seen? Mm. But for you, he made that moment special. Yeah. For doing that. I mean, I still think some of his writing's crazy as hell. Yeah. I still think some of it doesn't make sense to anyone but him. And I think most of it is just maturing yourself as a reader. He's just another writer. Some stuff he goes, I like. Yeah. Some stuff he does, I don't. But Seven Soldiers was particularly good. And I really did like the conversation that that episode inspired when we were talking about Bulletia. About yeah. the, 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 the underlining themes, as I saw them, of that miniseries. Mm. I mean, that may not be at all what he intended. I mean, I think we've said before, and I freely admit, I nicked this off Mark Kermode on the film show, 
but sometimes the artist is the last person that you want to ask about the art. Yeah. Sometimes what they make isn't maybe what they intended to make or say something that they didn't intend it to say. Mm. And that's why the art should be judged separately from the people in all cases, whether you agree with them politically, socially, religiously, whatever, you should be able to view their work independently of the person. Yeah. And I think that's what Seven Soldiers did. I was able to look at that and read that and go, actually, this is really quite interesting. And there's all this other stuff going on that maybe he didn't plan, maybe he did, I don't know. Maybe he thinks about his stuff in that level of depth. Mm. I think that was one of the best conversations we've ever had. So there you go, Sam. I hope you liked those answers. And it was nice to receive a question. Right, we don't want the episode to run much longer than it normally does because it's a pain in the ass in the editing room, if you've noticed recently. The episodes have been running around 90 to 95 minutes. That's been a very deliberate and conscious decision because I like spending my weekends doing stuff other than editing. So we're probably only going to cover one or two emails today. That doesn't mean we don't love your emails. doesn't mean we don't love receiving them because we do. So we're going to give a quick shout-out to every single person who is in the email sack. Damien Lee... Mark Lax, David Gutierrez, Michael Bailey, Ryan Wilson, Chris Franklin, Kurt Gruenwald, David Pascarella, Kyle Benning, Luke Giaconetti, Timothy Elliott, Professor Alan Middleton, Katie Williams, Rob Stubbs, and oh, that's a Den of Geek email, that's nothing to do with it. All those people have emailed in, and we've not read your emails yet, but we will get to them, so I thought it important. We give you a shout-out on episode 200. Thank you very much. We appreciate every single person who has ever emailed into the show. So, very quickly, we'll cover a couple of emails. Damien Lee has emailed in saying 90s rule. Is that like a monarchy? Could be. Morning, L1 and L2. I just finished listening to your initial 90s episodes and I'm very happy for two main reasons. One, another year of Hey Kids. Woo! Thanks for the next 52 weeks. Two, you like Lee and Clermont's X-Men number one. I was relieved. I value your validation. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with your takes on McFarlane and Liefeld, how the latter continues to get work amazes me. And yet he had energy and 11 and 12 year old like me looked up to him for his dynamism and he looked different to anything else. He made the likes of Paul Ryan, Steve Epting and Alex Saviak solid artists all, if uninspiring shadows of their predecessors on other Marvel books look boring. If you have time, listen to his guest spot on 11 o'clock comics from a few months ago. Basically, he acknowledged that he was a bloody lucky immature kid who turned a lack of talent into untold riches and success. He even said he created Deadpool to have a signature character that would be easier to draw than Spider-Man was for McFarlane. But yes, he was unquestionably crap even if I bought the New Mutants running four different formats now. <laughs> X-Men 1 came in just over a year after I became old, independent enough to collect regularly instead of when my mum took us to town. I was lucky enough to chance across a bunch of rough copies of the old Burn stuff around the same time in a second-hand bookshop, remember that? And I've spent the past 20 years filling in the gaps. I spent most of the next eight years addicted to X-Men, then came back for Morrison and Whedon. Lee's run may be briefer, but at least in Uncanny had some fantastic highs. Extinction Agenda, the Shi'ar, Savage Land, and his art set the standard for me. He'll always, alongside Byrne, be the quintessential comic artist to me. Basically, thanks for the blast of nostalgia. Now on to your next episode. Thanks as ever, Damien. Well, you're very welcome. We, uh, I had a good time doing those 90s episodes. I mean, we, we ripped the piss out of some of it. That was fun. And it was fun, and some of it was deserved. I don't yeah. think we were unfair. 
No. I don't, I honestly, no, I honestly, I kind of try and wear it as a badge, we are being self-indulgent, I'm warning you again, lovely listener, I kind of wear it as a badge of honour that I try not to be unfair. Yeah. If I'm going to rip something apart, I like to think it has a valid reason for me ripping it apart. Yeah. Or like Web of Spider-Man 1, I'm just going to chuck it across the room. Because <laughs> it was utterly <laughs> dreadful. Yeah. And I did do that. That would be <laughs> no. the funniest thing you've ever done. Because <laughs> it was such a complete shock to you. <laughs> like, this comic is crap. Be gone. <laughs> Threw it across the room. <laughs> That was the sound effect. I really did, really did do that. So we do appreciate that, even though you lightly field and we slated in that you don't think that we were grossly unfair. Mark Lax has emailed in with the 90s. Hey, hey, kids, love the show. Steve, self-aggrandizing much? I've read all three of those special issues when they each came out, and my feelings pretty much match your attitude. The Web of Spider-Man cover and issue are completely forgettable because I actually forgot about them until you discussed them. <laughs> Comics you've read and forgotten about. Maybe that should be a topic. This was a strange period for Spider-Man with the insanity of the Clone Saga and the intro of Carnage and some unforgettable foes. Let's not forget the deaths of Old May and Baby May. I just chalked this issue up to the excess of Marvel 90s attitude that whatever crap we put out to the readers will make mine Marvel. With that said, I was enjoying the Fantastic Four at the time. I thought Tom DeFalco's writing was a lot of fun, if a bit silly, but it kept me reading. As for our pal Superman, all the stories you guys mentioned from time and time again until the death and return were solid. The 90s is one of my favourite periods of Superman history. I thought the electric blue suit looked pretty cool and the storyline was interesting, but for the anticlimactic ending. Covering the 90s makes for a great listen. I wish someone would cover more of the Superman issues of that period. Hey, wait a minute, there's some guy named Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor who do just that. I won't mention you stole his idea because I'm sure at this point he's getting the legal papers ready. Oh well, still love the show and Andrew's Grant Morrison impression. <laughs> I think I've written enough but it's my first email to you guys so I thought I'd start big. Be seeing you, your pal Mark. Well, thank you very much Mark for us being the first email you've ever written. <laughs> Maybe not the first email he's ever written. Maybe the first one just to us. Yes. I can live with that. Alright. Right, yeah, as we've said, you know, we're trying to keep this stuff down so... Only two emails tonight, I do apologise. But everyone else who's emailed in who is waiting in the queue, you will be read on the show. I can't say further than that, can I? We'll be right back after this very special 200th episode trailer. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked and young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com And we're back. For the not last time. No, not for <laughs> the last time. How could we give this up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the luxury seats in the fireplace and the I, I do like Demanzo the, money I do like uh, Demanzo's new decor. He's, uh, he's obviously got wind of what's happening and he's made it much more 1980s. Yeah. Because the 70s stuff's gone out the window, hasn't it? So when we do the 90s next? We've done the 90s. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep up. 
We're doing our decades all wrong. Yes, we did do our decades all wrong, but that's because we've got something very special planned for the 1980s, Mm -hmm. which I think the lovely listener will enjoy. Speaking of the 1980s, and speaking of episode 200, we very nearly changed this, didn't we? Mm. We had this planned out. This was all planned out. Michael was going to go to university. 200 was going to be the end. We were going to double up, do a couple of extra recordings over summer, still release them on the weekly schedule, and um, 200 was going to be it. And episode 200 was always going to be what we're covering today, wasn't it? Yeah. Because, and we're giving some clues here, Mm -hmm. it brings it full circle. In planning the show, ultimately, I decided to not change it. I couldn't be bothered. I couldn't be bothered thinking up something that still worked as bringing it full circle, but still left this on the table for when we do eventually finish. And I thought, no, the best way to approach it is stick with the plan as if this was going to be the end, and this is what the end episode was going to be. And then at the last minute, DiMonzo will email in and say, ah, your contract allows you not to leave. Yeah. And we were going to go from there, weren't we? Mm -hmm. As you know, I love bringing things full circle. And when we did issue number one, issue sword, yeah. episode number one, what did we cover, Michael? Uh, we covered Superman Secret Origin. We did. We covered a six-part <laughs> revamped origin for Superman hmm. that was going to be the be-all, end-all, absolutely accept no substitutes, this is the real deal origin of Superman now and forever. <laughs> that worked out well, didn't it? It did, yeah. So, for episode 200, we are going to cover... A six-issue revamp, except no substitutes of Superman, that will be the definitive origin now and forever. In 1986, it was announced to the comics fan press that writer-artist John Byrne would be revamping Superman for DC Comics, following the company-wide miniseries Crisis on Infinite Earths. For me, then aged a tender 14 years of age, this was big news. Byrne was, at that point, arguably the biggest creator in comics. Any titles he touched immediately jumped in sales by 50,000, and even if a comic only had a Byrne cover, it commanded high prices on the back-issue market. An argument can be made that Byrne was the first creator people followed from title to title, regardless of the character being worked on. But, and this is crucial to understanding how my 14-year-old brain worked, he was a Marvel creator. Yes, he'd done some stuff for other comics companies, a pin-up for Superman issue 400, an issue of Untold Legends of the Batman, a few Carlton comics, but he cut his teeth on the Uncanny X-Men, Iron Fist and Marvel team-up before taking over the Fantastic Four and elevating it to new heights of greatness. To be honest, the news came as a bit of a shock. Byrne had recently given an interview to Marvel Age magazine discussing his plans for the FF's 25th anniversary issue, number 296, and for his plans for the celebratory issue 300. He's subsequently gone on to say that, following those issues, he had plans for a 12-part story entitled Doom War. It was one of the biggest disappointments of my comics reading life to therefore open Fantastic Four issue 294 and see not John Byrne's work, but that of Jerry Ordway and Roger Stern. As one of Byrne's faithful 50 at that time, or Byrne victim, as Byrne himself would call his fans, I was so disappointed with FF 296 after reading of what Byrne had planned, I dropped the comic. Byrne didn't just quit the FF, however. He quit Marvel. 
It's probably a coincidence, but glancing over Mike's amazing world's website at the covers for Marvel for the month Byrne left, it seems to signify Marvel's downward turn creatively. From about 1980 to 1985, Marvel's output was always, at the very least, solid entertainment, and it was often groundbreaking. But that started to wane in the mid-80s, and DC started to become creatively more interesting. Despite ditching Marvel, I was excited to see what Byrne had in store for Superman. The last son of Krypton had long been a favourite character of mine, even if his comics had really been a must-purchase. Oh sure, I picked up Superman Action Comics and DC Comics Presents pretty regularly, but there's no denying that Gil Kane's smack-in-the-face run on Action Comics aside, the title and character had been pretty moribund for a while. Certainly post-issue 400, the main Superman boot was nothing to write home about, the rare exceptions being a cool Lex Luthor four-parter from Curry Bates and Alan Moore's For the Man Who Has Everything. Action Comics was even worse at this time, boasting only the ambush bug issues and an impressive Brian Boland cover for issue 571 as even being slightly memorable. DC Comics Presents was always hit or miss, the bane of the team-up title, but it had more interesting issues post-crisis than the other Superman comics, most notably The Jungle Line in issue 85, a pretty good crisis crossover two-parter, and an excellent annual featuring Superwoman. But these were the exceptions, not the rule. Burns suddenly couldn't make the character any less interesting than he'd been for the last two years or so. Reports differ as to exactly how Byrne came to be the architect of what was being called Superman's post-crisis revamp. Wikipedia reports that writer Marv Wolfman was instrumental in bringing the project to Byrne's attention, whilst Dick Giordano's meanwhile column in the front of Man of Steel No. 1 states that Giordano had had many previous light-hearted conversations with Byrne regarding what he would do with Superman should he be given the opportunity. Byrne says that he pitched the idea along with other creators such as Curry Bates, Frank Miller and Steve Gerber, and his proposal was simply the one that won out. Byrne has even mentioned that one of the other pitches began with Superman dead. Byrne apparently wanted to tell the revamp story within the original continuity, and his pitch was in that vein, but it was DC that wanted a ground zero reboot. Whatever it was, at 14, I didn't know any of this. I'd just started to be allowed to journey to Manchester on the train on my own, and so it was. On Saturday the 12th of July, I journeyed to Odyssey 7 to pick up Man of Steel number 1, fresh from the stands. I even bought both covers, a move I can't recall was intentional, or a mistaken belief that they would have different contents. The first issue covers were called New Stand Edition and Direct Sales Edition, the latter only being sold in comic shops. Both issues are here, in my little hands. These are the very ones that I bought on that date in 1986. The Man of Steel logo is in silver ink on the direct sales edition and it's a nice touch but the cover itself is simply a Superman shirt rip what do you think of that one? that's my favourite is it? yeah I think that for a while was my favourite you can't go wrong with a shirt rip yeah it's like hulking out it's you know an iconic thing isn't it? I only I read purposely read that issue because of the cover cover, I think I prefer that one yet it is just it's just a shirt rip there's nothing else to it Mm. The new stand cover starts a layout trade dress that will be followed by all subsequent issues. A white band down the right hand side depicts one of the main characters who bestrides the band and the focal image of the cover. As befits the first issue, it is Clark Kent engaged in a shirt rip on one side with a rocket ship escaping the doomed planet Krypton on the other. Both are typically burn. 
them as a mark for his art. I love them then, and I still like them now. Although it has to be said, on the new stand edition, Clark's pants are so tight, it's hard to imagine him wearing another suit of clothes underneath. <laughs> they look like he's had a bath in them. Yeah. Don't they? And they've shrunk around him. Uh, I much prefer the logo design for the new stand edition, with the silver ink. I think that's much nicer. Mm. But uh, that's just me. The entire series was released bi-weekly from July 10th, 1986 to September 25th, 1986. And I traipsed all the way to Manchester every two weeks to buy it brand new. The first issue is 32 pages with no ads. The first page is the aforementioned Meanwhile column by Dick Giordano, whilst the back page is a text piece by Byrne on how he was first introduced to the character via the 1950s television show, which starred George Reeves. The back page shows all six covers of the series and tells us what dates they will be on sale. Comics by this point had ridden to 40 pence, meaning that only two could be bought for a pound. The creative team would be the same throughout, with John Byrne writing and penciling, and Dick Giordano credited as inker. Byrne apparently wanted Giordano to ink the project, but later found out that he farmed out some of the work to Frank McLaughlin, although Giordano presumably did figures and faces. From out the green dawn begins on Krypton, with Jor-El removing his son Kal-El from a birthing chamber, much to his wife Lara's horror. Jarrell tells her that Kryptonian society, indeed the very planet, is doomed thanks to a fusion of elements at the core, elements that are irradiating them all. By removing Kal-El and placing him in the Matrix Orb, he is protected from the radiation and, if all goes well, will also be protected in hyperspace flight to a distant planet called Earth. This planet, not unlike Krypton of eons past, orbits a yellow star that will imbue Clark with powers and abilities far from Earth norms. He will be like a god, a supreme being. Lara wonders if he will rule, and Jor-El replies, maybe. As Krypton ruptures and boils, Jor-El launches the Matrix Chamber. Lara is horrified by images of Earth, but it is far too late. The planet explodes and the matrix chamber flies off on its journey a small piece of home embedded in its tail fins the secret in smallville clark kent wins his latest football game of the season although his father jonathan is none too happy about it he takes clark to a field off the kent farm where jonathan shows clark the matrix chamber he explains that Clark was found in this ship out when a storm hit town just after they found him. It was easier to just introduce Clark as their own child months later when the storms and snowdrifts subsided. Over time, Clark developed strength, speed and even the power of flight. Clark realises that using these powers for his own selfish gain is contrary to his upbringing and vows to make some kind of difference to the world. The Exposure Years later, Martha sticks another cutting in her scrapbook of disasters that never happened, a book Jonathan isn't terribly sure Clark would approve of. However, as Jonathan opens the paper, the headline they never wanted to see covers the front page. Mysterious Superman saves space plane. Clark is upstairs, and he tells Jonathan Martha all about the Constitution, the newly launched space plane that debuted at Metropolis International Airport. A small, one-man fighter collided with the space plane, and the two spiralled downwards. Clark reacted, flying upwards and guiding the plane down. Lois Lane, a reporter and passenger, starts to demand an answer, but a crowd arrives, shaking Clark to his core. How can he continue to do good now he's been exposed? Jonathan Kent 
Hey, have the answer. The superhero. Jonathan and Clark designed the famous S-Shield, displaying heretofore unknown graphic design skills. Martha likewise displays here some incredible costume design and sewing skills, fashioning a costume of skin-tight fabric, mostly of blue and red, with bright red boots and a cape, and all agree that from now on, whenever danger strikes, it'll be a job for Superman. You could have just synopsis that with Rocketed from a planet Krypton, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and left it alone. Uh, the Krypton scenes in this comic are powerfully drawn. And an awful lot of this was stolen for the Man of Steel movie that came out. Was it last year? Yeah. Did it come out in 2013, that? Was it 2012? I don't know. Seems like a while ago now. Mm. Maybe it was last year, I don't remember. Uh, Krypton isn't as unemotional and sterile in the movie as it is here. But the idea that children are conceived in a birthing matrix was borrowed for that flick. Keelix also appears in Man of Steel. He's the little robot that Jor-El speaks to. Not Brainiac in the animated series. No, no, it's not Brainiac in the animated series. I didn't mind that. Yeah. Uh, That was a retcon that completely worked for me, making Brainiac the Kryptonian computer. I didn't mind that at all. Because he's from Kulu. And you're like, well, who gives a toss about Kulu? (laughs) He's part of Krypton. That ties him to Superman in quite an organic way. I I didn't mind that change. It was quite... uh, Quite good uh, thinking on behalf of... Uh, was Paul Dini right that one or Bruce Tim? I don't know. One of the two of them. He looks like the robot in the Fantastic Four, though. He does remind... You've said that before, that he reminds you of Herbie. Yeah. I wonder if that was deliberate. Could be. Given that it was burn a burn... Doing burn yeah, yeah, a burn project. Uh, burn received a lot of flack for his women on occasion. His entire website's devoted to what a misogynist he must be. <laughs> Every time you read them, though, you can you can poke holes in the theory if you really want to. But if you're only looking for one point of view, then all right, fair enough. <laughs> to be fair, Lana does actually suffer from one-dimensionalitis, doesn't she? Mm. Did you not think when you were reading this? Jarrell seems quite reasonable, yeah, and he comes across as being, you know, quite forward-thinking and quite open to new ideas. Lara's just a hysterical shrew. Yeah. whining and gasping at every opportunity and protesting how the ways of Krypton are proper with very little thought to how others may live. Mm. She's very single-minded and narrow-minded. Although she is supposed to represent all of Krypton and their beliefs. I think people have mentioned this, but it's, this series has been so documented and so dissected and so discussed and reviewed. It, it's hard to think what's your own thoughts and what you've read somewhere else. But I think somebody did say if the point of the Burn revamp was to create a Krypton that you wanted to see blow up, yeah. mission accomplished. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's pithy, but it's it's a fair comment. She's very anti-change. She's not very likeable. No, but I read it as though she was supposed to represent Krypton and the beliefs, and she was supposed to be someone who would counter Jarell's outside the box beliefs. Jarell wanting to send his son to Earth doesn't have the same power if everyone's all for it. Yeah, well if Lara agrees with him. Yeah. And it's it's his decision and his decision alone. And you wouldn't get as much about the backstory and the culture of the planet if she was all like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I get that. I just I, just, I don't know, I just maybe I'm not supposed to like her. I mean let's face it, in the burn Krypton, she blows up here at Krypton, as Marlon Brown does her. <laughs> In the Burn Krypton, she disappears from this part. He never sees her again. Or shouldn't do. I think there are other storylines as we go, Day of the Krypton Man and all that stuff. Yeah. But his contact 
that explains Krypton to him is his dad. Mm. His mum's dead. He doesn't have any contact with her. So maybe she's not supposed to be likeable. Yeah. Maybe she's supposed to be like this. I, I did find it funny that she was very much of the opinion that Kal-El should rule Earth as a dictator. Yeah. So he will teach them proper Kryptonian ways. <laughs> and you're kind of like thinking, in Man of Steel, she's more like Zod. Yeah. Than she is like Jor-El. Mm. Yeah, alright, fair enough. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe there was, she was supposed to be rather unlikable. Krypton blows up. One small piece of kryptonite gets embedded in the tail fin of the rocket. Would that not kind of send the ship a little bit off course or damage it in some way? One would have thought that maybe it would have caused some kind of damage. Well, maybe he wasn't supposed to land in Kansas. Yeah. Maybe yeah. The, the kryptonite hitting the thing there knocked it slightly off course. Yeah. And he lands in Kansas by mistake. He should have landed in Russia or yeah, England. Yeah, we should have got Red Sun off True <laughs> yeah. Brit, but he'd landed in Kansas in error. <laughs> so all of Superman's history was an accident. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I can go with that. <laughs> Everything John Byrne did was an accident. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're into chapter one, which was the secret. That was just the prologue. What did you think of Clark being a football hero? I didn't mind it. Did you not? No, what I didn't like was how Jonathan acted about it. Yes, well, there's, there's two issues here. I didn't... I honestly didn't recall liking this as a kid, and I don't really like it now. I didn't feel it was in Jonathan's character to even let Clark get to this stage. Mm. where he's playing professional football. Yeah. A clerk who doesn't know how strong he is... Yeah. ...and hasn't really had much in the way of practice of, of holding himself back, and we don't get any indication from this that he's ever done that, mm. he could really hurt somebody if he goes in for a tackle without meaning to. Yeah. You know, you can break bones going in for a tackle with normal people. Imagine if Superman tackled you. Mm. So there was a part of me that my problem with it was that Jonathan wouldn't have let him get this far before telling him anything. Because it's quite clear he's been playing football for a while. Yeah. Because this is another game that he's won almost single-handed. Yeah. Why is Jonathan only now pissed off about it? Well, I liked this because I'm so used to seeing the outsider Clark Kent. Yeah. From ten years worth of Smallville. Yeah, yeah. Nothing else. So I liked it because it was different. And from reading this issue in later issues... I got the opinion that he knew he had powers because he knew he could fly and he survived the bull. Yeah. And he says in the later issues that he gets used to pulling punches. So I'm assuming he must have known about his strength to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, it establishes in this issue that he's he's not very old when he learns to fly. I mean, he gets trampled by the bull when he's, he's you know, he doesn't look more than six years of age, though. Eight, isn't it? Is it eight? Yeah. And he learns to fly... He looks like he's 15, 16, though. Mm. So he, he is aware that he has all these powers. Just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around Jonathan knowing he could do all this from eight years of age and letting him play football. Yeah. It's one of those instances where Smallville kind of got that completely right, that Jonathan Kent was... They did an episode about this, mm. where Clark wanted to try out for the football team, because he was like, I can win. Yeah. Every single time. Is a bird showing off when it flies. And Jonathan was like, you can't. If you do that, you in the heat of the moment, you could kill somebody. Yeah. And Jonathan's right. Mm. John Scheider, Bo Duke, was right. <laughs> and we, we should get that to make a bumper stick. <laughs> Bo Duke was right. That was my problem with it. I mean, I get what you're saying, that Jonathan seems to have taken a weird, a weird amount of time to get pissy about it. Yeah. I don't think he would have let him play it in the first place. Well, but. 
for me, what it was, from reading just this, you didn't seem to get that he was doing it for the glory or the popularity. I got that he was doing it because he enjoyed it. Hmm. But is it not cheating? No. Why? It's not cheated to... If you're really, really good at something, naturally, you're not cheating. No. And so Clark's like this naturally, so he's not cheating. Just because... Oh, I really don't know that I agree with that. He is significantly better than everyone else at this game. But that it's not unnaturally. He's naturally better than other people. Oh, see, I would go down on the side of this is cheating because he clearly has an advantage that the other people don't know about. Yeah. It's almost like steroids. Almost. It's not the same thing. I know it's not the same thing. But he's got an unseen advantage that other people don't have. Yeah. And they don't know. If if this was a level playing field, Mm. and he was playing against, I don't know, the Martian Manhunter and other people equally as powerful (laughs) as him, then fine. Yeah. But I I lean towards he's cheating. I get what you're saying, but for me this is cheating. Well, that's where the next part of my problem comes in. Right. Because Jonathan says he's very disappointed with what Clark's doing. Hmm. And then he gives him this lecture on how he needs to do his powers for good, which is Superman, and I'm fine with that, and I'm fine with that, and it, it shapes who Superman is. But the fact that Clark suddenly says, right, fine, okay, I'll stop playing football, which is what I enjoy... I don't like that because surely he should carry on doing it and his responsibility is that he should be like Dash at the end of The Incredibles. What, just hold himself in? Yeah. He can still be Superman, but I think he shouldn't just stop doing what he enjoys. And I didn't like Jonathan being disappointed in him doing what he enjoys. See, that goes back to the idea that if Jonathan hadn't let him do this in the first place, this conversation wouldn't be an issue. Or if he did let him do it and told him about the responsibility of balancing the odds. But he can't just turn it off. He can He can't turn his powers off when he's being when he's playing football. You yeah. can say he can restrain himself, he can hold himself back, but he can't stop being Superman. Yeah. If somebody goes in to tackle him hard, they're gonna come out of that worse off, not him. And he's not done anything. He may just be stood there. Yeah. He may just catch the ball, somebody goes at him, wham, that person's broke the collarbone. Clark didn't do anything wrong, but that's my point. You can't play any kind of physical sport against him like that. I could argue with you maybe he could play tennis like a normal person, Yeah. but he couldn't play a contact sport like this, a boxing or something. Mm. Somebody goes in to punch him at boxing, they're going to break their wrist. He can't turn that off. He can't control that. Yeah. So that's ultimately my problem with it. He can probably control his strength, like you say. But he can't control other people running into him. Mm. If they run into him head first and yeah. break the neck, is that his fault for carrying on playing? Well, no, but... I think it is. Okay. Because he knew the potential dangers. Maybe, maybe he could be like Ultraman and sniff some Krypton, Kryp- Kryptonite <laughs> coke. No, let's not bring Kryptonite <laughs> coke, coke snorting. Coke tonight. Coke tonight into, into Superman. Lana Lang has a, a one-panel cameo and a flashback. Byrne has said that if he was really to be given carte blanche, he'd have ditched Lois and had Lana be Clark's girlfriend. But the Lois-Superman-Clark relationship was considered inviolable. Burn makes a big deal to the point of smacking you over the head with it at every available opportunity that Clark is born on Earth. Doesn't he? This comes back in issue six. Mm. It's like, it's not subtle. No, no, no. By any stretch of the imagination. 
I do wonder why this was so important to him, given the amount that he bangs on about it. Given that the Kents were stuck at the farm for five months, thanks to the snowstorm, presumably the Kents only got a birth certificate long after the fact. So who really cares where he was born? Yeah. It's not like the Kents know that this is a birthing matrix. Presumably Cal could be considered born from the moment Jurel removed him from the gestation chamber. I just felt this was obsessing over a, a tiny little detail that was really not important in the grand scheme of things. Maybe, maybe it was just what Byrne believes Superman to be. Because, well, within the confines of the story, right? Yeah. Once the rest of the world find out he's Kryptonian, mm. he's considered an alien. Yeah. They don't care that he was born on Earth. Yeah. And it doesn't make any difference to Jonathan and Martha. Mm. They still love him as a son. So who does it matter to? You well, know. He, he says for all he cares he was born when he came out of the ship, but that's kind of ignoring yeah. what actually happened. What's interesting to me about it is it takes away that he's an immigrant. Yeah. Which in many ways is one of Superman's selling points, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone bangs on about the fact that he's an immigrant, that he came to America to make a better life for himself. The American dream. Mm. And by taking that away... Burns added this idea that he was born an American, so presumably he could run for president. Yeah. Although I don't know how he would prove that if everyone knows he's Kryptonian. How would he prove that he was born when they opened the Matrix chamber? I don't mm. know that he could. But it, it loses... I don't know. I, I just felt that he felt this was more important than it really is. Maybe it was he wanted to focus on the family aspects of it than who his parents are. Um, Clark feels woozy. Due to the kryptonite stuck on the chamber's tail fin, a plot point that will be followed up after this initial miniseries is concluded, as is the mystery man that is seen there and on the last page in the barn. Did you not notice him? I didn't see him in the barn. Did Clark? Could Clark not notice him though? Could he not hear an extra heartbeat or something? I just think he has to be specifically listening Maybe. for that stuff. I mean, would he not hear all the animals as well? Yeah. All right. Yeah, you've got a good point there. Actually, yeah, he wouldn't notice one more heartbeat on a farm full of cows and livestock, would he? Yeah. Good point. Yeah. All right. That's fair enough. I can go with that. Uh, the guy will be revealed to be Emmett Vale, and he will create Metallo. Yeah. In the first issue of the series in 1986. Uh, one of the things I do find interesting as well is Martha's scrapbook. In addition to all of the disasters that he's helped avert, he's raised the Titanic. Yeah. How is that averting a disaster? Uh, it's not like he stopped it from sinking. <laughs> Maybe um, a museum was going bankrupt so he raised the Titanic to help them. I didn't. I, I honestly didn't get the point of that one. All the others are flood diverted and we don't know how, and the wave that was supposed to hit the coast didn't, and bridge holds till last minute as everyone is able to get free. Oh, by the way, the Titanic's been raised. Why did he raise it as well? Yeah, that, that was my question. That was, what? What? Why? What for? <laughs> what reason did he have for doing that? Yeah. I don't know. And how have they explained that? Because Superman doesn't exist yet. Yeah. So what did he do? Just float to the top on its own? What would James Cameron have done? <laughs> you know, so there you go, in the DC Universe, there is no Avatar. <laughs> there is no Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Because Superman raised the Titanic in 1986. James Cameron, in the DC Comics Universe, doesn't have a career <laughs> after Terminator of, 2. Because of not Superman. Yeah, because of not Superman. James Cameron... 
is James Cameron does what James Cameron does because James Cameron wants to do it. <laughs> but James Cameron doesn't have anything to do now because Superman's <laughs> ridded him of his life's goal. Yeah. Cheers, Superman, <laughs> thinks James Cameron. <laughs> whose career spirals into depression <laughs> after Terminator 2. <laughs> but they didn't think of that, did they? <laughs> Probably not. Actually, Terminator 2 hadn't happened when this came out, had it? No. But my, th- my logical thinking there was Terminator 2 could still have happened. Mm. Because it was nothing to do with the... Yeah, he didn't raise the T-1000. He did not raise the T-1000. No, that's very true. Jonathan is reading the Smallville Post, not to the Daily Planet. So the headline, Mysterious Superman Saves Space Plane, is not attributed to Lois Lane. Mm. Although it will be in the next issue. So it's entirely possible that the Daily Planet has already called him Superman, and this has just nicked that idea. Yeah. I'm going with that explanation. Apparently, the space plane should have been a space shuttle, but was changed due to the Challenger shuttle disaster that took place in January of 1986. That's pretty much all I have to say about the ending. You know, I mean, a lot of this we give a pass to because of our nostalgic fondness for it, and a lot of it we give a pass to because it's Superman. And who doesn't know the Superman legend? But there's an awful lot of this that doesn't really work as well as more simple and straightforward tales of Superman's origins. For one, Superman making his first appearance in civilian clothes does stand out when it's been pointed out to you, as Mark Wade did. And I can actually understand his point. Secondly, I do kind of struggle with Martha and Jonathan designing the outfit the way they do, whilst it's an iconic and immediately recognisable costume to us today, it does have a few things that are very much of its time and probably wouldn't be a designer's first choice when making a costume like this in 1986. The less said about Jonathan and Clark designing the S-Shield, the better. The idea behind superheroes' costumes is something that many have struggled with over the years, and Burns certainly deals with it about as well as anyone ever has. It's skin tight, because clothing near his skin is protected by his aura, which is fine, if an example of Burns' over-analyzing of the science of Superman, much like Superman being a low-level telekinetic. But the problem with explaining everything means that when something goes unexplained, like exactly what was the impetus for red, blue and yellow, why a cape, etc., it makes one scratch one's head. Superman says it's exactly the swashbuckler look I was looking for. But if that was the case, why does he not look more like Errol Flynn? Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Hmm. It's one of those, if it's a Kryptonian costume, fine. If, like in the early Silver Age where he went to Krypton and everyone wore a variation on his costume, didn't they? They may have had purple tunic and yellow trunks and yellow boots, but they all wore clothes of a like to what Superman wore, implying that that was Kryptonian fashion. And what Superman wears is therefore Kryptonian in origin or look. And then when you get to something like Man of Steel, or was it Birthright as well? where the costume is a Kryptonian outfit of some description. Yeah. I don't remember what it was in Birthright, but that, in contemporary times, that makes sense. Mm. But in 1986, if you're designing a costume for somebody in a world where superheroes don't exist, why would you create the Superman costume? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, it, it was rushed. The ending was pretty rushed anyway, though. Like, he spent too much time going on about... He was born when the Kryptonian gestation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. chamber opened. It was, 
he, he spent so much detail going on about when he was born, but rushed through his costume, which was which is more important than where he was born. I, I honestly think that is a case of the over-analysis. I think he can scientifically justify stuff like the flight yeah. and the X-ray vision, and he can, he can give scientific, pseudo-scientific basis to that. But when it comes to the costume, you've just got to accept that's what he was. So when you're trying to come up with a reason for him designing such a costume, it never works, because you can't. Yeah. Well, if it's Kryptonian outfit or Kryptonian garb or a Kryptonian battle suit or whatever, mm. that makes more sense in contemporary times. Or if it's like the costume, how the costume actually was based on a circus. Yeah, based on circus performances. If he just gave a reason rather than saying, oh, we did this design. Yeah. If somebody says to you, what does a swashbuckler look like? You don't think of Superman. No, you think of pirates. Yeah. Or Robin Hood. Yeah. That's what you think of. This is what I'm saying. This was my problem with reading all six of these now as an adult. The things that he gives an awful lot of time to, nine times out of ten, they're just not important. Mm. I don't care that Superman needs a reason to explain why he can carry stuff without it crumbling. Yeah. I just accept that he can. I don't know. Oh, I can do low-level telekinesis. <laughs> it gives a toss. I mean, let's be honest, who would come up with that S-Shield? Someone who knew about Superman. There you go. Even an ex- explanation like, oh, it stands for hope on my country. Yeah. Just an explanation. Yeah. I like the um, the Superman the movie thing, that it's the, 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 the sign of Krypton, the sign of L. Yeah. In Birthright, it's the flag of Krypton generally, isn't it? But it's right. still the symbol of his planet. Yeah. Whereas in Superman the movie, it's the L family crest. Yeah, I, I quite like that. Although it does stand, bring the question of why does is L an S? I don't know. But I, no, I like it how each house has their own yeah. symbol. I mean, because like Christopher Eve never felt the, the the desire to say on my planet it means L. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lois saying, well, this planet means S. Yeah. Get yeah, deal with it. You're on this planet now. <laughs> In every other respect, though, it's hard to see why this was given such a hard time when it was published. Byrne alters the minutiae of the origin, but all the beats are present and correct. Some complained that Krypton was now a boring and sterile place, but it's there to blow up, as I've said before. And making a Krypton that no one will miss is slightly better than making it this place that Superman pines for every other issue. Keeping the Kents alive was another big deal at the time, and whilst I had no problems with it as a kid, it's an element I agree with now. Jonathan or Martha, or both, need to die to teach Clark an important lesson. Mm. That he can't fix everything. There are some things that even with his powers, he can't stop from happening. Yeah. And death is one of them. Uh, likewise, getting rid of Superboy was a big deal for others. It never bothered me. I never took to the Superboy strip as a kid. If I wanted to read about Superman, I'd read about Superman. So his excision wasn't something I lost sleep over. Byrne has said, though, that if he'd known DC would backtrack on having a Superman that wasn't quite perfect yet, he'd have kept Superboy. Mm. The original plan was Superman would not know as much as he does. Man of Steel, the miniseries, was not supposed to take place over six years. Yeah. As it does originally now. It was just supposed to be. And then Superman number one, he wouldn't know what he was doing. Mm. And then at the last minute, DC said, no, we kind of want Superman who knows what he's doing. Right. So he had to re- rework Man of Steel. Yeah, but 
nonetheless, this is an incredibly influential take on the material, and the art is gorgeous throughout, even if I don't think Giordano, whoever, is really suited to Byrne. Whilst Byrne's Superman is very 1980s in design, overly muscled, broad shoulders and chest, and tiny waist, and bears a striking similarity to Christopher Reeve, elements of this would be used in all the major Superman adaptations going forward. The space plane rescue is used almost verbatim in Superman Returns, the scene where Martha designs the costume will be used for Lois and Clark, and the sterile Krypton in Man of Steel. Superman does not find out where he is from in this issue, nor does he throughout childhood, something that would be followed up on in both Lois and Clark and Man of Steel. Elements of this will also crop up in the 90s animated series, and this was a ground zero retelling which was necessary for Superman. Unlike the Marvel heroes, Superman never had a definitive beginning, with the origin doled out in pieces over the years, and additions made as and when. This gives us that beginning, and it does it moderately well. It being over in one issue is also a nice novelty nowadays. I like that, the origin's done, over with, move on. Mm. Because let's face it, we all know it. Yeah. He didn't really change that much, did he? No. All things considered. He never has. No. It's not my favourite Superman origin. I no. think my favourite Superman origin is still the one from 1940-something. Right. I don't like that one. Mine's the mover. Superman the mover? Yeah. That's fair enough. Issue number two has one of the best covers of the six. Still following the same trade dress, Lois is the character on the right, whilst Superman lifts a car out of the river in the central image, which is absolutely glorious. Nobody is better at drawing a Superman in flight than Burn, even to this day. You like that one? Mm. It's great, isn't it? I like that cover a lot. He does, he does good heroes in flight. He does. But uh, nobody gets capage quite as well as him either. Mm. The cape always just looks real yeah. when Byrne draws it. I don't know why other people have, have struggled with it. The story of the century begins in a coffee house with Lois Lane suddenly stunned to see the caped wonder stunning the city as he zooms through the streets of Metropolis. She pursues, but even with the use of the LexCore chopper, the blue bombers buzzed off. Superman then has one of those first night montages made popular by the Richard Donner movie. He prevents purse snatching, prevents the diabolical crime of noise pollution, and helps SWAT with a liquor store robbery. Lois, however, arrives just that split second too late at every incident. This ends up being a familiar refrain over the next few days, with even rival papers calling the mysterious caped hero Superman. Lois, fed up, deals with the situation in her own inimitable fashion. She creates her own disaster. She drives her car off the pier and into the drink. Fortunately, Superman is nearby and pulls the soggy reporter clear of the vehicle. Later, at her apartment, Lois gets Superman to talk, although he claims it won't be of much use to her. And after a brief conversation, Superman asks if Lois always carries an aqualung in her car. Lois rushes the story into print and hurries over to the planet with it, only to find the planet already has that story, thanks to its newest recruit, Clark Kent. Superman flying that low down in the city always felt a little bit like showing off. Yeah. Especially that big grin on his face. And do you think he's deliberately looking at Lois, though? Could be. Do you think he's deliberately stalking her? Maybe he's super checking her out. Well, he's got a bit of a hot for her, hasn't he? It does also raise the scientific question of if he's flying at a certain speed, do the mirrors not shatter? Well, I presume he's going very, very slowly. What, just to save her? Yeah. Looking at Lois. And have everyone just bask in the adulation of the people of Metropolis. Yeah. Which isn't what Superman's about at all. 
Uh, does Lois always go for breakfast with the boss? Maybe. Maybe, maybe they were talking stories. Maybe. Uh, maybe going for breakfast for the with the boss is a surefire way of getting yourself talked about around the office. Yes. Breakfast with Perry again, Lois. <laughs> Indeed. Where did you sleep last night? <laughs> Eckhart. First very dated aspect to the story. Lois asking Perry to make sure the boys stay near a phone. Yeah. Nowadays, everybody's near a phone, mm-hmm. whether they want to be or not. One of the interesting things about this issue is establishing that Lois has some prior relationship with Lex Luthor, whose name is all over town, and that she's in with him enough to ask anybody for use of a Lex Core chopper. Yeah. She just goes to the guy and says, yeah, can I borrow him? And he goes, okay. Well, she has a LL mug later on, doesn't she? She does. She does have a, a Lex Core. Well, is that not a Lois Lane mug? Rather than Lex Luthor. Why would she have her own name on it, though? Because she's Lois, and in this version of Lois, Lois is a massive egotist. Or in The Office, everyone has their own mug. Maybe they do. Like, there's a PW one. So that, like, office space, where people don't use other people's mugs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I need you to come (laughs) in on Saturday. Yeah, okay. (laughs) According to Marv Wolfman, he created this new version of Lex. According to Byrne, the only thing they took from Wolfman's pitch was World's Richest Man, and Byrne fleshed out the rest. The full story, from Byrne's point of view, is on the Byrne Robotics website under the Frequently Asked Questions, but Byrne was apparently a tad annoyed that Wolfman received, and continues to receive, a residual check for this version of the character. Given that, the corrupt businessman version of Lex is probably the single element of this revamp that has gone on Mm. to future iterations... I can understand why he's a bit miffed. Yeah. Because let's think about it. The businessman version of Lex, the animated series. Mm-hmm. Let Lois and Clark. Yeah. But if by all accounts the, the rumours we're hearing about Superman versus Batman, it's going to be the businessman version of Lex, isn't it? Because in Man of Steel there was Lex Core yeah. put, um, things all over town, weren't there? Think of the new one, Lex Luthor will create Facebook. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> I like that. Very good. Uh, there's something wonderfully square about a Superman that is concerned with noise pollution. I like a square Superman. <laughs> I do. I've got no problem with yeah. it. There's nothing wrong with a corny Superman. Yeah. Is there? And I, I actually thought this scene was pretty funny. I really did like it. Um, after rescuing the woman from the purse snatcher, he asks her to turn her beatbox down. He doesn't ask her, he does it he for does her. He does it for her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is funny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's be honest, that's hysterical. But can we just say, beatbox... Yeah. <laughs> it's a ghetto blaster. It's so... But is it really cute? <laughs> I call it my ghetto blaster. That's absolutely fantastic. Not dated at all. No, no. Also, the punk girl. What does Burn have against punk girls? The liquor store robbery shows a harder edge to Superman, which I'm really quite fond of whenever it happens. It's not quite like the golden age of hurling people through windows and throwing wife beaters around the room. Yeah. You're not fighting any woman now. Still my favourite line in any Superman comic ever. But him burning the guns with the heat vision so that they burn their hands and then he knocks a woman out. Yeah. Granted, it was a woman who had dynamite around her. I thought that was quite nice. I like the, the line of dialogue. You wouldn't hit a lady and Superman says, a lady? No. <laughs> well, you're no lady. Thwack. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Very, very funny. Uh, also, McFarlane would go on to rip off page nine. When Superman crushes the barrel of the gun in Spider-Man number one, I'll yeah. get to lesser effect, because he doesn't get it right, does he, in the art? Mm. Which I think we took the piss out of. 
didn't make any sense artistically in that one. In this one, Superman just crushes the barrel of the gun. Yeah. So you're like, you try firing a bullet through that. Good luck with that. I'd completely forgotten as well that Burn, well, was Burn the first guy to do the angry red eyes of anger? I don't know. As he does be. in this issue. He could be. He could be the first. So he's got so much to answer for then, hasn't he? Is it another of those things where he could be, but we don't know because of how many people have done it? Yeah, we don't know. For, I mean, this is 1986, so I don't know for certain if this is the first time it was done. But I'm willing to bet that this is where the people who now do it all the time first saw it. Yeah. Uh, how on earth does Lois Lane afford her clothing budget? And this is the third dated part of the story. Lois is very Vogue, <laughs> circa 1986, isn't she? She looks like Maddie Hayes was her stylist. <laughs> you know what I think? Yeah. Shoulder pads... I mean, what's that look? Bottom panel of page 14. She's got a suit on and a fedora. Yeah. Who the hell does she think she is, though? A, a, a 1940s businessman. <laughs> Strike a pose. <laughs> Nothing Maybe. to it. Vogue. Maybe they're all second-hand. <laughs> you think she goes to goodwill for all her clothes? She, she just likes to hide it. All right, OK. Fair enough. Uh, Burn makes no effort to update Jimmy. Yeah. Which, ironically has meant that Jimmy's fashion sense, hipster tank top and bow tie, has come back in fashion. Yeah. Doesn't it? So he goes through all this effort to give Lois Lane up-to-date clothes, but by leaving Jimmy as a 50s squirt, he's inadvertently made him hipster chic. Yeah. He is. He's, he's Matt Smith Doctor Who. Mm. <laughs> I thought that was really funny when I realised it. Yeah. It was just one of those things that went, wait a minute... Lois looks incredibly dated now, but Jimmy doesn't. <laughs> Lois got updated and looks dated. Yeah, but Jimmy, how did that work? <laughs> uh, Burns' drawing of Superman swooping in is absolutely magnificent. I love that panel yeah. where he's swooping in over the panel. He'll kind of repeat that a little bit later on. Uh, following on from the clothing budget question, Lois has a huge apartment, which again, I would like to know how she affords, unless Lex has bought it for her. Maybe. Maybe she lives in Monica's apartment from Friends, <laughs> which was also unfeasibly large, mm. given what Monica did for a living. Did you not think the writing here was a bit sloppy? Why? Uh, I didn't like the scene transition at all, for Lois to shout Superman back in, going yes, and it just says, later. I don't know that it's necessarily sloppy. I mean, I get what you're saying. I mean, has he carried her home? Yeah. Oh, yes, he does, because he dumps her on the balcony, doesn't he? Because mm. that's when he has that really creepy line, I know where everyone lives, Lois. Yeah, I didn't like that either. I thought that was a little bit creepy. Maybe he was bluffing, but... No, I think it's more likely he just knows where Lois lives. Yeah, this this just reinforces our theory that he stalks her. Yeah, <laughs> so Superman Returns wasn't that far <laughs> away from the truth. <laughs> The uh, Your Eyes, which are blue line, is taken straight from the 1978 Superman movie. Uh, Superman doesn't drink and dislikes Brie, which apparently is the queen of cheeses. Oh, okay. I do like, as well, Clark Kent's look. I like his flat cap and scarf ensemble. Yeah. He looks like he's auditioning for Monty Python's Four Yorkshiremen sketch. Either that... Hey, when I were a lad. <laughs> Either that or he's hiding a Tommy gun under that <laughs> <laughs> He's a 1940s hood. Yeah. We're going to go out in the Daily Planet, see? I'm going to give my report their story in, see? <laughs> Rise, guy, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah, I hadn't considered that, but that, that's very true. <laughs> Light and frothy, but not in a bad way. Man of Steel 2 was carried by purely on the novelty of Burn drawing Superman. 
as the plot itself is very slight. As I said, though, this isn't a bad thing, but it's an unabashed homage to Donna's 78 movie, with Superman being very Chris Reeve-like and Lois having a Margot Kidder vibe. There's a twist in the tale that Clark gets the story that Lois got in the film, although she still gets to name him Superman, and she still loses himself in his dreamy blue eyes. Entertaining then, but as someone whose first exposure to Superman was the Donna Fleck, I honestly didn't see what was all that different about what Byrne was doing at the time. Now I can appreciate what was lost a little bit more than I could back then. Advertisements in this issue, uh, there's one for Teen Titans Spotlight On by George Perez, which is moderately interesting, but the rest of it, not really any interesting ads in this one, is there? No. What do you think of issue two? Uh, I enjoyed it. It's nothing wrong with it, is there? It's light and frothy and entertaining. And it, it is very similar to the movie, and I really like the movie. Yeah. It's it's very similar to the 78 movie. Hawkman has a miniseries, apparently. Oh, no, now it's an ongoing. And Angel Love, I have no idea what that is, but she seems to be taking cocaine in that panel where her eyes have just gone very big. <laughs> okay. And the Meanwhile column is about Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC checklist for the month beginning July 24th. All-Star Squadron 62 was out. DC Challenges you 12. Harlan Ellison's issue of Detective Comics. Hawkman. Legion of Superheroes Annual 3, Lords of the Ultra Realm, no idea, Man of Steel obviously, Tales of the Legion and Teen Titans Spotlight. Helen Ellison did an issue of Detective. Helen Ellison did an issue of Detective Comics, yeah. That could either be really good or not that good. We covered it when we did our favourite Superman stories. Did we? Yes, but I didn't ultimately pick it so you didn't read it. Right. I picked it based on memory and then I read it again. And I was like, this isn't as good as I remember it. (laughs) So we we ditched it. Issue 3 differs slightly from the trade dress in that the white portion down the right side is now black, which can only mean one thing. A certain dark night is dropping by. Byrne shows off his excellent capage on the right with the Batman almost completely enveloped by his cape and only possessing the bat on the grey shirt. No yellow oval yet. Byrne also makes the cape and cowl blue as opposed to the black he adopted in the Legends miniseries. On the left, Superman smashes through a wall in the best George Reeves style as the villain noses Magpie turns to see why her wall just collapsed. It looks like it's exactly the same piece of art as page 14 of this comic. I even went to your mum to clarify this. It's that. Yes. It's exactly the same. Because me and your mum analysed this. We looked <laughs> at each little sliver of brick yeah. to compare them. And it is. All he's done is copy and paste. Right. Which is um, a Michael Gerdos trick, isn't it? Duh. And Daredevil. I think he's moved Magpie a bit closer. He, he has changed the angle of them, but it's the same piece of art. Yeah. I'm, pr- I'm 99.9% convinced all he's done there is photo stats. Maybe he's just really, really good at drawing rocks. You reckon? Because he is really, really good at drawing rocks and computers. He is really, really good at drawing rocks. Why computers? He does really cool technology. Oh, right. He does good tech. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's fair enough. I don't think the colour does his Batman any justice, though. No, I think his Batman looks better with the black cape and cow. Because he doesn't give Batman much detail. Well, there's not really a lot of detail to give him. He's just got the cape wrapped around him. Yeah, so. but apart from his eyes and the lines of his cape, he doesn't give him any more detail. So what you're saying is that that cover probably took him all of 20 minutes to knock out, if that. Pro- yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's photo started that bit and then just whapped out a drawing of Batman. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Good money if you can get it. <laughs> you like that cover? 
Yes. Now that I've pointed out it's photostatted. Maybe a bit less. Alright. Lo- no, I love the bursting through the wall thing because that's just so George Reeves. Yeah. Where he'd come barreling in through a wall and it, it, the, the polystyrene bits and bounce off the floor. It, it is a museum though, so. Yeah, so he's just done damage to a museum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did not consider that. He's just damaged a priceless money. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you, Superman. One night in Gotham City opens with the Batman threatening to break the legs of a cheap fuck named Bull Carter if he doesn't spill the location of a woman named Magpie, a murderess, who has killed eight people already. Bull, more scared of Magpie than the Batman, a fact that the Batman cannot wrap his head around, flees. The Batman pursues but is caught by Superman who believes the Batman to be an outlaw. The Batman tells Superman to get off his back, or a bomb that he has planted on someone in the city will explode. Superman is an aghast. The Batman explains the need for such actions. He is following a trail of dead left by that svelte seductress of shiny baubles, Magpie. Elsewhere, Bull has told Magpie of the Batman's interest, and Magpie is a tad upset that Bull didn't have the brains to mislead Batman and lead him a merry dance. I think she was expecting too much of someone called Bull. Anyway, Magpie blows his head clean off, a noise that Superman hears clear across town. He and Batman make the scene, but Magpie escapes after releasing an acid gas into the air. Superman inhales it all and flies into space, where he exhales, turning the gas into ice crystals. Swooping back down, Superman finds the Batman analysing the thread he pulled off the vial Magpie kept the gas in, and wouldn't you know it, there's only one place in Gotham she could have gotten that from. Superman and Batman head over there, where Magpie has a nervous breakdown when confronted by Batman, explaining her backstory to her, and by extension, us. I just can't get over that her name was Margaret Pye. Superman and Batman wrap up the tale of the conversation on a rooftop where the Batman reveals that he was the someone who would blow up if Superman touched him. Superman leaves, noting that he and the Batman may have differing methods, but their goals are the same. The first page has the appearance of a gargoyle, which is obligatory in any appearance by Batman. Yes. Normally he's stood on him, and he presumably was here as well. Well, it's, given it's that these first, first eight pages are his point of view, yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I yeah. think it's absolutely fantastic. It starts with the gargoyle in profile. The camera tilts upwards over the gargoyle's head and then down through skyscrapers, down over the top of a man running through an alley. The shadow of the bat falling upon him, and then Batman's feet kick him, followed by punches coming in the frame, with us only seeing them land on a rather bruised and beaten face, drawn entirely from Batman's point of view. This could have been a storyboard for the animated series. It's that good. Mm. Absolutely brilliant opening. Loved it. Love the Batman's tough guy dialogue. You're wasting my time, Bull. You know how I hate having my time wasted. He's totally Clint Eastwood, isn't he? Yeah. But I especially like that he got taken out with a cabbage. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. Yeah. That made me laugh. The art in this issue may be the best Byrne has done for the title so far. Hell, it may be the best of all six. Batman is lithe and athletic when swinging through the streets, but the shot of Batman having the line whipped out from under him and being pulled up by Superman is absolutely stunning. It's another up shot. Batman being pulled into frame by Superman. The buildings around him are bent like it's a fish-eye lens. Byrne's perspective and anatomy are faultless. I love that panel. Yeah. I thought that panel was great. What do you think of his Batman? I really like his Batman. 
Yeah, I wish he'd done more of what he did in Legends, but Legends came after this. I mean, he's got heavy blacks on the cape yeah. and the cowl, but he's not at the point yet, apart from that one panel on page three where he's drawing them a solid black. And uh, I always think the solid black cape and cowl goes much better with the bat without the yellow oval. Mm. That's just my opinion. Other people may disagree. Um, page six, the angle changes to show Superman hovering above the city, cars below and buildings to the side. We never see the tops of the buildings giving the panel a very real feeling of vertigo. Mm. And Superman just hovering there. Again, the capage is brilliant. Absolutely no problems with it. My issues then start happening on page seven, particularly with the story. Right. So the Batman has been wearing this force field with a bomb on his belt for how long? Since he started hearing about Superman, That's knowing it. that the paths would cross. On the off chance Superman might show up, yeah. he's been wearing this bomb on himself ever since Superman Does made Does that mean cabin. no one could touch him? Well, it's exactly, it's a paranoid much. So that cabbage that just hit his head could have blown him up? Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's possible that he's carrying it and he's only activated it now he's met Superman. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're absolutely right. If somebody punches him, he's going to blow up. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't think that made a great deal of sense. It does make Batman out to be paranoid. And I did like the idea of him having the bomb on himself. Yeah. I, I, liked, I mean, we knew that he wasn't going to, you know... Yeah. Uh, blow up an innocent. What I didn't like was Superman having it out for Batman because he's a vigilante... Even though Superman technically acknowledges that some people call him a vigilante, but just ignores it. Yeah, yeah. Some people call me a vigilante, but I know I'm not, so that's okay. Yeah. So maybe Superman <laughs> is actually grown up to be a dictator. Yes, yes. Well, uh, we'll come back to this later on. Put a pin in that. We'll uh, we'll return to that later. Uh, Bird lets the side down a little bit here with Batman. Bronze Age Batman was most definitely a chatty cafe. Yeah. Here, he's positively verbose, mm. isn't he? He does not shut up. Lovely art, though. The detail in the cityscape on page 9 is gorgeous. And all those water towers have me searching for Spider-Man. Because <laughs> I thought that was a Ditko New York scene. Lovely, lovely cityscape. Well, this is New York, isn't it? Because I'm pretty sure the Chrysler building's in a few pages back. I don't, maybe he just used New York as his, his Gotham. Yeah. You know, it's entirely possible, I suppose. Uh, Batman's maths, though, is off. Right. He tells Bull eight people are dead. Yet when he explains it to Superman, the total is actually nine dead. Right. He may be the world's greatest detective. He's not the world's greatest mathematician. <laughs> and again, I went to your mum and said, just add that up for me, make sure I'm not wrong. Yeah. It doesn't add up. Yeah. If you sit and go through it. Carling and Gruenbach may be a reference to Mike Carlin, uh, but Gruenbach is definitely Mark Gruenwald. He even looks like him. So basically, Magpie's henchmen are Mike Carlin and Mike Gruenwald, who at this point were editors over at Marvel. Mm. Mike Carlin would come in over to edit Superman when Andy Helfer left. Yeah. In about four issues' time. Mike Carlin's even wearing the... Uh, yeah, it must be Mike Carlin, because he's wearing his Hawaiian shirts. Right. He's, he's very fond of <laughs> Magpie is very, very insane, and also a very much a Bronze Age throwback. From her name, Margaret Pie, Mag Pie, get it? <laughs> to the taunting she received as a child, giving her a criminal nom de plume, Magpie, get it? To her obsession with shiny, pretty things, also playing into the nickname. Yeah. 
this character is straight out of the 1960s. Mm. Only the fact that she's dressed like a punk and she blows heads off, literally, turns her into a grittier 80s character. Yeah. Because she does, doesn't she? Poor bull. Sticks sticks dynamite in his mouth and lights it. I I didn't like her, but I did really like that dynamite bit. Not happy birthday! Not happy birthday! (laughs) Poor bull. I don't think he deserved that. I mean, we don't know what he's like, really. He could be an utter scumbag and totally have deserved it for all we know. I don't know. Also, uh, I've asked this before, what does Burn have against punk? (laughs) He makes the punk girl turn down her music in issue episode two, issue two, and the punk girl here is a psychotic bad girl. Yeah. I think we should grass him up to Susie Sue. Okay, well, maybe he's a, he's a Costello fan and hates <laughs> that kind of music. Well, was Elvis Costello not a punk at some point? I don't know. Was he more new wave? I don't, I don't know. He's, maybe he's a big Mr. Rogers fan. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with Mr. Rogers' neighbourhood from the one episode I've watched. <laughs> Why do bullets bounce off Superman's chest? Why don't they just stop dead? Is it not, does it not come from Man of Steel, so they ricochet off them? I know, I know it seems odd to think about this 75 years after the fact, but it's just something that hit me while I was reading this. Why don't they just stop? Why is it not like hitting a brick wall? So they just stop? Yeah. What, what is it that they bounce off him? I assume the name Man of Steel was quite literal, and so they ricocheted off him. Right, okay. Alright, for an I just... I do like that he never bothered trying to scientifically explain that. No, it's, it's a good question, but I just always took that as a given. Oh, okay. I presume somebody has asked that question before. I can't be yeah. the first person to ever <laughs> wonder that. I doubt it. If he's enough to stop a football player, then surely he should be enough to stop a bullet. Yeah, but my that, that's just my thinking. Just by reading this, I just had that sudden thought while I was looking at that panel. Why do they bounce off? Hmm. Wouldn't they just stop? Or maybe it's just a visual thing. Well, it just looks cool. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. I can go with that. Batman has no Batmobile in this issue, he just has a regular sports car. I really liked that. I liked that as well, and his mobile crime lab in the boot. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was quite cool. Batman's living in his car after his wife kicks him out. <laughs> yeah. After the divorce, Kathy Kane took Wayne Manor. Do you know what would have been cool? That should have been a Chevy Impala. <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't it? Should have been a 59 Chevy Impala like um, San and D. Yeah. Or are they 57? Either way, yeah. they've got a huge boot. Mm. So that crime lab in the boot of that 57 Chevy Impala would look right at home. Yeah. Where they have all their weapons. Yeah. He's just got all the crime lab stuff. It would fit. But then he draws it like a little sports number. Mm. I think a Chevy Impala would have been much better suited to Batman, in yeah. my opinion. Or a Mustang. Because it looks like a hearse. Yeah. So that's better in Batman. I don't think Batman would do a Mustang. Really? Yeah, well, Bruce is more Ferrari or Lamborghini, I think. Is a, is a Mustang not too loud? Well, you've got to wonder about the guy who keeps to the shadows and he's trying to be an urban myth driving around town in a sports car anywhere. Yeah. But maybe it'd be a sedan. Maybe, yeah. I like the Chevy Impala idea, to be honest with you. Uh, Batman has the final monologue that wraps everything up rather than Superman, as mentioned frequently on the From Crisis to Crisis Superman podcast. Byrne did this a lot mm. when wrapping up his stories. Oh, I've only got two pages left. <laughs> Exposition overload. Batman almost says a private little war, which is an episode of Star Trek. He just says a private war. But on the next page, he muses that in another reality, Batman may have called Superman friend, which is totally a line from the Star Trek episode Balance of Terror, mm. as well as being a little nod to the pre-crisis era where Superman and Batman weren't always at odds with each other. Mm. Uh, 
very definitely a game of two halves. On the one hand, the art in this issue is some of the best of Burns' career, with some of the best depictions of Superman and Batman ever committed to paper, with some absolutely magnificent panels. The story also has some fun moments, even if it doesn't entirely work in and of itself. For one, Superman, as usual in a Superman-Batman tale, comes across as the less cool part of the team, despite the fact he can fly into space and turn gas into ice with his breath. He's arrogantly showing up in Gotham to take care of Batman, without even investigating who exactly this Dark Knight he's heard so much about is, shows Superman to be a little bit hard of thinking, and he's blustering his way through the case whilst Batman does all the cool detective stuff adds to this impression. It seems a shame to have the Batman be the star of a Superman story. Likewise, Magpie herself is hardly an adversary worthy of the world's finest team, and her crimes and the Batman's deduction of them are very Bronze Age. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it doesn't jibe with Batman Year One very much, although Batman was very much in a transitional phase at this point. Even by the standards of the Bronze Age, though, Margaret Pie, Magpie, was laughable. So, not perhaps the best Superman-Batman first meeting, but the art and Batman's magnificently tough guy dialogue just about scrapes it by. What did you think? I really liked it. Did you actually really like this one? Yeah. Okay. That's all you got to say. Yeah, the the, the magpie bits were a bit naff, because magpie is a bit naff. (laughs) A bit? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, no, I, I liked Batman and Superman. In fact, I liked Batman over Superman in this. Yeah, but that's the problem with it, isn't it? Yeah. It's an issue of Superman in which Batman is the cool one. But this series is kind of the important bits of Superman's history reworked into a modern retelling. Yeah. So Batman's got to be in there somewhere. Yes, his meeting with Batman is important. It's not quite a meeting on a a ship, though, is it? No. And getting assigned to the same cabin. (laughs) Yeah. It's not... (laughs) Quite as good as that. Not quite. <laughs> uh, adverts Vigilante Annual Number 2. I read a couple of issues of Vigilante, it was alright. Tales of the Teen Titans Annual Number 4 and the Legion of Superheroes Annual Number 4. But the best advert, again, is the Batman Year 1 one, which we've covered before, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, by David Mastuella, which is uh, absolutely glorious. I especially like that in black and white. Yeah. I think advert's much better in black and white. Because inside, the adverts on the inside cover. Adverts on the inside the cover are white. never in, no. in black and white, are they? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Issue 4 has Lex Luthor, albeit with a receding hairline rather than being completely bald, on the right, while Superman swoops in on the left, protecting Lois from a hail of gunfire. I think that's pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I do as well. It's good, that one. I like how you can see how much time has passed because of what Lex's hairstyle looks like. How much he's receded. Yeah. I love the suit. Just jet black. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Absolutely excellent job. Enemy Mine opens with a rather glamorous-looking Lois arriving at Clark's apartment, still holding a grudge about him scooping her 18 months earlier. They adjourn to the roof where a Lex Corps chopper takes them to the Sea Queen, Lex Luthor's personal ocean liner. Clark doesn't approve of Lex's blatant disregard for building safety and probes Lois about her and Lex's special relationship, which apparently includes loaning her the dress she's wearing. As they dock with the Sea Queen, Lois reprimands Clark about believing everything he hears. The duo meet Lex, Clark, for the first time, and after small talk, Lex requests to speak to Lois in private. 
They have a verbal sparring match in which Lois learns the dress is in fact a gift, something which so incenses her she removes it there and there, using Clark's jacket to cover her modesty. Pissed off, something burns Lois' walls most of the time, she storms off only to walk into a hijacking. Typical Lois. Clark intervenes, getting in the gunman's face and is rewarded by a pistol whipping and being dumped over the side. As the hijackers start making the demands, the Sea Queen rises into the air. The fact that this is a boat and shouldn't do that does not go unnoticed as the Sea Queen is docked at Luther's private island, allowing Superman to drop in. Lois has managed to take a gun and is firing, but before she can be shot herself, Superman prevents any more gunfire by destroying all the guns. Superman modestly plays down his actions to Mer Berkowitz, who is present, but Luther then offers Superman a $25,000 check, stating that he is now on Lex's payroll. Superman is all, uh, that's not happening, but Lex is all, money can get me anything, and Mer Berkowitz is all, where did these security people come from? Lex says they were there all along but waited to see what Superman could do. Berkowitz is appalled, especially as Clark was killed, but Superman has to play the, uh, well, actually, he's okay bit. Still, Berkowitz isn't impressed and deputises Superman and has him arrest Lex. A few days later, Lex is out on bail and he encounters Superman at a hospital where the man of tomorrow is just aided with a delivery. He has this big speech he must have rehearsed about how Superman is a dead man walking. It's just a matter of time. Lois looks pretty good on page one, but she's very brusque to Clark throughout this entire opening scene. Byrne has said again on Byrne Robotics that he rejected Wolfman's pitch about Luther and Lois being an item because he wanted Lois to be likeable. He doesn't really do a very good job of that. No. To be absolutely fair. There are still elements of them being together in this. Yeah, well, there's elements of the fact that he's interested in her, but she's never reciprocated. Yeah. That's what I got from it. She's using him, though. Uh, You think? Oh, yeah. She's totally using Lex. Using Lex's helicopter and Lex's dresses. So you're saying she's using his interest in her for her gain without actually giving him anything in return? Yes. Right. So you're basically calling her a, a manipulative person, though. Isn't she, though? Well, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. All right. As a journalist, she has to be. Lois yells at Clark for something he did over 18 months ago when he didn't even know her. Although, to be fair, Superman knew her. Yeah. But Clark Kent didn't. She does soften when she thinks Clark's dead, though. Yeah. She is, Lois. <laughs> That's a bit late. Why does Clark go to the expense of having an electric razor? Um, that made very little sense to me. For sound effects. Why, though? Does he have a lot of women over to his apartment that he needs this cover story for? Maybe, yeah. I mean, why bother? Surely Clark could have a wet shave. This this was another one of those where, reading it now, I just thought this was overthinking it. Yeah. There is no reason for him to spend money on an electric razor. There is no reason for this elaborate ruse. I don't have an electric razor. You don't have an electric razor. Yeah. Just because I have an electric razor it just doesn't make people think that I'm shaving with a bit of my <laughs> Kryptonian rocket ship, does it? Yeah. It, it didn't make any sense to me. It was overthinking something that didn't need explaining. I, I do like the panel earlier where he does his little working out. Which is a Superman 2 reference. Well done. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, he totally does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Superman 2 visual gag. Well yeah. done. Excellent. Uh, red glowy eyes of anger. 
<laughs> Again, all of, of in shaving anger. <laughs> the, the angry red eyes of shaving. Yeah, I, I also like how Burn has to explain how he can use heat vision on himself and not burn himself. Yeah, well, this is what I mean. This was just overthought. It's not because he's from Krypton. It's because his cheeks are naturally hardened. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I thought this was a bit stupid, to be honest. Although the whole "how does Superman shave" debate seems largely pointless when this was published over twenty-five years ago. Yeah. Although I suppose he uses his heat vision as a, and a piece of his rocket ship dummy wouldn't have gotten a bunch of boring celebrities any FaceTime, wouldn't it? Mm. When they were doing that. Was it last year they did that? How does Superman shave? Why, does, why did nobody just go, here you go, Man of Steel issue 4. <laughs> Problem solved. Yes. Lex is one of those people that wants people to know how important he is. Mm. God, I hate people like that. But I, I like Lex Luthor. Oh, I like Lex Luthor. I just hate pompous, self-important assholes. Byrne does lay out a lot of good world-building here regarding Lois, Lex and Perry. Lex and Perry hate each other for reasons not disclosed until well after John Byrne had left. Mm. When we find out that Lex was father to one of Perry's kids. Right. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I think it was Jerry White. Right. Jerry White was Lex's kid. Lex White. Yes. <laughs> no relation to Walter. Yeah. I presume. Or, or Perry Luthor. Or Perry Luthor. Or Jerry Luthor, he would have been. <laughs> yeah. I have to confess, as a kid, I had no idea who Fred Mertz was. So, Lois's insult was a boat that left me on the island. As an adult, I had to look it up. Apparently, it's from I Love Lucy. Right, okay. Which means nothing over here. Neither does the Honeymooners. Okay. I mean, we know who Lucille Ball is. Yeah. Because I Love Lucy did get shown over here. But it, it's not on perpetual rerun. So when I read this as a 14-year-old, I had no idea what they were talking about. I did you? No, no, no. Okay. I still don't get why Lois got so angry over the dress. Because that doesn't put her in a very good light. Why not? Well, she happily accepts a dress and will keep the dress. No, she's not keeping it. It's a gift. She's going to return it to him. Right. Okay. After the party's over, she's going to give it him back. Right, but she's had it for three months. Has she? Yes. Right. Because, well, this is what I'm assuming. Yeah. If she got the dress specifically for this night, she mentioned she was looking forward to this night for three months, which means she knew about it for three months and so must have had the dress for three months. Which makes sense that you would know about something this important three months in advance. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of overthinking, there's a word balloon on page 14 that seems to have been added after paste-up of Superman explaining how he can lift things easier when he's flying. Yeah. It's a different letter. Uh, I never gave that any thought as a kid. Uh, just like, why bullets pass off his chest? Yeah. It's not something I ever thought about. Well, did he not lift it up at the most integral part? Yeah, you'd think he'd be smart enough to lift it up at a place where it's not going to break. Yeah. I don't understand why we needed all this telekinesis thing that enables him to keep things from breaking. I just didn't, you know. Whatever. Okay. It's not a deal breaker or anything. Uh, Page 15 has the same shot as the cover, but from behind. Uh, We're behind Superman, which is unfortunate because it looks like the hijacker shoots Superman right in the balls. (laughs) Doesn't it? Yeah. Man of steel. Balls of steel. (laughs) Quite literally. Superman slowly destroying the gun was brilliant. Yeah, I like... Making his way along. Yeah, I like how his fingers wriggle. Yeah. And uh, I'd let go if I were you. Implying <laughs> yeah. he's just going to carry on up his arm. Yeah. Which would have been hysterical. Yes. If his <laughs> arm was just all mangled yeah. up. <laughs> Superman had just crushed his hand, every little bone in his hand, before the guy went, all right, get in! 
But that's not Superman, is it? No, Superman just leaves people at the top of a cliff. If they die, <laughs> it's not his fault. No, no. Burns' facial expressions on page 18 are absolutely magnificent. But he, he always was very good at the facial expressions. Hmm. Especially Superman's face when he's... Uh, well, actually, uh, no, Clark's fine. Yeah. Oh, that was funny. Love the woman who thinks that Superman is in the subway to see why it's late. Yeah. Which um, is a brilliant bit because it's a really nice touch demonstrating how we all see the world as it affects us. Mm. She's not bothered that Superman may be there because the subway's on fire somewhere and there are people in danger. Yeah. She's just like, why is this damn thing late? <laughs> it amused me. And Superman gets a woman to the hospital in time to have a baby and she names it Robert Superman Nig. Yeah. Which was clever. I like that his middle name's Superman. And I like the, how the implication is that he stayed there for the end. Yeah, he helped her through the entire birth, yeah. which was quite sweet of him. Mm-hmm. What if he had wore a gown and could all be that stuff? Yeah, all, all the people who died in fires and car crashes and <laughs> while he was there helping that woman have a baby. <laughs> it's something we just don't talk about. Superman being photographed is another piece of foreshadowing for the future. I think that was also the Metallo storyline. Uh, a good issue, probably the most satisfying of the six. Lex came out of the reboot the best, really. Burns Lois was angry most of the time and his Superman wasn't overburdened with an abundance of brains, but this version of Lex has become almost as well-loved as the Mad Scientist version from the early days. It's quite easy to see why. Lex, in this incarnation, was one of the first in the wave of Gordon Gecko-inspired villains, incredibly wealthy adversaries who were above the law simply due to the number of zeros in their bank balances. And this was a good way of giving Superman a foe he could fight with his fists. That Superman's intelligence was dumbed down a lot post-crisis also helped solidify Lex as a foe to be feared. Ruthless, psychopathic and fearless, this Lex is seen to have one weakness, a desire to own everything. And what happens when he meets somebody who cannot be bought was central to the new Lex Luthor. In other developments, Clark has to explain how he shaves and keeps his physique and Lois holds a grudge for a very long time, which conjures up the entourage gag. Who keeps a grudge this long? Women and gays, bro. Women Women and gays. gays. (laughs) That's from Entourage, that's not me. I'm just pointing that out. What did you think of that one? Uh, I I liked it. I love that one. I think that one made my favourite issue of the sex. It wasn't my favourite, but... I, I liked Lex Luthor in it. You, I think he you're going for the issue. Superman Batman one as your favourite? One of. Oh. I have two favourites. Ah, alright, okay. Fair enough. Issue 5 has a shambolic, lumbering creature walking away from us on the right, whilst on the left, Superman gets punched in the face. The Mirror Cracked, which is an Agatha Christie novel, I think. opens in Hong Kong with Superman blaming the most recent attack upon his person on Lex. In his hands, Superman holds a man in a battle suit, a suit made wholly from Lex's core parts, and the man a former employee. Lex calmly explains that the man was fired and the parts stolen, so Superman has no proof of Lex's involvement. So if he would be so kind as to bugger off, Lex can get on with his day. Superman does so, but it was all a ruse. Lex wanted Superman to come there so Dr. Teng could monitor all of Superman's cellular and molecular structure and dump that data into a clone created by Teng. However, Teng's equations were off as nobody knew Superman was an alien being. The bizarre clone emerges from the chamber but collapses. Lex is not pleased. Teng is told to dump the body and make himself scarce. 
In Metropolis, Lois is living with her sister Lucy, who was recently blinded in a hijacking. Lucy is a tad bitter, but tells Lewis to go to work, which she does, and Lucy decides that suicide is better than blindness and leaps off the balcony. Fortunately for Lucy, Superman saves her, but he says nothing, and even feels a little... dusty. Simultaneously, Lois arrives at the Daily Planet, and Clark is there, so he and Lois monologue about Lucy, but they are interrupted when Clark's supervision picks up a man in a Superman costume with clothes over it and glasses on, walking into the Daily Planet lobby. Making his excuses, Clark changes, and after peaceful negotiations are rejected, the two Supermen get into it. Superman finds that this bizarre version of himself also has powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Powers that hurt. A blast of heat vision pins Superman down and he returns like for like, burning off the chalk-faced adversary's outer clothes just as Lois appears. Superclone picks up Lois and steals a cheeky snog as they arrive at Lois's apartment. Lucy can see vague shapes again, coincidentally after Superman was here earlier, but proper Superman arrives and they boss fight over Metropolis. Superman quickly realises he's in trouble, but a microscopic analysis of the dust that keeps coming off our bizarre friend reveals not dandruff, but non-organic cells. Not a clone, but an imitation of life. A robot. If the creature isn't alive, he can kill it. Superman takes to the sky as Doppelgangman angles himself in front of Lois's apartment, and the two collide in mid-air with a mighty shoom. Superman emerges unscathed, but the ganger is not but dandruffy flakes. Weirdly, these flakes restore Lucy's sight, and Superman ponders if the mysterious clone was aware that that would happen. Uh, I would have got minimal notes on this one, because this is easily my least favourite issue of the series. I thought it was a nice touch that the battle armour Lex used pre-crisis is the battle armour being used here. Yeah. And I really like that that splash page has no background. Yeah. I just think there's something about it that's really effective. I really like how they play on the um, reader's expectations of it. That that is Lex. Yeah. Yeah, that was good, that. But it? that does rely on the reader... Knowing the pre-crisis stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know that... It still works. It still works. But if you do know it, you kind of get a bit more from it. Yeah. It is good, that. I, I liked that as well. I thought that was quite clever. Uh, Lex is really quite slimy and evil in this opening, in a good way. Although this again goes to the dumbing down of Superman, who really isn't depicted as being very bright if he can be fooled into coming all the way to Hong Kong just for this. Mm. Which I thought was a little bit stupid. Minor fanboy niggling, where does Superman keep his costume? In the changing scene in the middle of the issue, we clearly see Superman does not have the costume on under his clothes. His shirt rips to reveal his manly pecs. Yeah. But there's nothing there. There's no There's no S there. Because mm. this isn't like the pre-crisis. He's not scrunched it up in a really tiny little ball <laughs> and put it in his mouth. No. So where is it? Well, maybe they could have done it like that animated series toy you used to have. You know the one where it's Superman? <laughs> it's hey. in his backpack. Yeah, he's, he just carries around his backpack. That would be a good explanation, but for two <laughs> problems. There is no backpack, sir. And there is no backpack. Yes. So that's a minor problem. There is, there, yeah, I mean, that's true. what I'm saying. All those science things that he obsesses over. Yeah. And then this here, he doesn't bother explaining this. Where, where was where was the suit? Especially seeing as when he takes his pants off. Yeah. He's got the red overpants under the shoe, under well, the pants. Maybe he can wear his pants 
under his pants, but he can't wear his, his top under his shirt. So where is he keeping the top in his cape? Maybe there's a few of them littered around in... <laughs> in the Daily Planet building stirwells. Yeah, you know, like, the, the smart, uh, break glass to set off fire alarm. Maybe he's optimistically not expecting there to be, ever be any fires and has replaced them with little... Break glass in case of need of cape. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, if they had them in, in work, I would totally break the glass yeah, yeah. and wear the cape. Yeah. <laughs> what was funny for me was how I didn't remember much of the series other than the ending of the first issue and Lucy L- Lane getting her vision back from Bizarro. Oh, is this the one you remembered the most? Yeah. Really? When I was reading the issue going, she's blind. I was like, wait a minute, doesn't she get dandruff in her eyes and she can see that? <laughs> She gets bizarro dandruff she in her gets, eyes. She gets bizarro. <laughs> Which is never pleasant. Yeah. I think we can both agree. When Superman fries Bizarro's clothes off, the resultant effect is Bizarro's costume is now of a much darker hue yeah. than Superman, similar to evil Superman in Superman 3. Mm. Which I thought was a nice touch. I really liked um, Bizarro's disguise. Yeah. I, I, I laughed out loud. <laughs> a pair of specs and a coat over the Superman costume. And I love how you can see the cape I love in the, the cape is, is under. Yeah, is that what fastening it up or anything? <laughs> yeah. The cape still drapes out of the back underneath the coat. Yeah. It is quite good. It is quite clever and funny. Although I do wonder why Bizarro looks like Mo Howard. Okay. Three Stooges. Oh, okay. You're not familiar with the Three Stooges. No. <laughs> You're not familiar with any of that. All right. As I said, most disappointing issue of the six, the, the plot is made up almost entirely of coincidental happenings that don't really come together that well. And it's really a waste of of the bizarro idea. What coincidental happenings? Well, for one, Lucy was blinded by a hijacker who threw an unknown chemical in her eyes some time ago. But we don't really care that much, as Lucy has never appeared before now and will disappear again after this issue for quite a while. Secondly... Unknown chemicals aren't really that unknown in the real world at this point. And simple tests from colour, taste, smell and even the container that it was housed in can be used to identify the chemical type. It's extremely unlikely a hijacker would have had access to a truly unknown, never-before-discovered-by-man chemical. Hell, Batman could probably have identified it in minutes. So that there could be an unknown chemical, the very foundation that this story is built on in the first place is unlikely. But that Lex's clone would somehow be the antidote to that unknown chemical is even more implausible. So none of that worked for me. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, Andrew, you're thinking, how can you accept that Lex and Dr. Teng can build a flawed clone of Superman, an alien that can fly... But you can't accept that Lucy was blinded by an unknown chemical. Well, lovely listener, I'm glad you asked that question. Allow me to elucidate. In any science fiction story, there are going to be elements that don't exist that you accept to enjoy the story. Warp drive, transporter beams, aliens from Krypton, etc. But chemicals exist. And to build a grounded environment for your sci-fi tale to take place in, you need to treat stuff that is real as real. Now, I'm no chemist by any stretch of the imagination, but even I knew, with no googling, that the idea of a completely unknown chemical existing in this day and age is highly implausible. 
10 seconds of Google took me to a science forum that confirmed my hypothesis. And I just thought that this was lazy plotting to say, unknown chemical caused this and unknown chemicals fixed it. I expect better from John Byrne. There's an attempt to put some pathos into this with the idea that Bizarro knew that this would help Lucy. But that's really woolly as well and it's not backed up in the story at all. This issue, more than any other, relies on us knowing Bizarro and Lucy and feeling a modicum of sympathy for them. Something that a Ground Zero reboot shouldn't rely on. This story in and of itself makes no effort to make us care about Lucy or Bizarro. No. It relies solely on you knowing who Bizarro is from the pre-crisis stuff. Yeah, although what I got from it was that the the, the dusty particles that fixed her eyes were life-adapting cells. Right. So to create the clone, they would have need said life-adapting cells. Mm -hmm. But because Superman's an alien, they killed off Bizarro, but because Lucy's a human, they fixed her. Do you know what would have been really cool, though? What? If Lucy now had X-ray and heat vision. (laughs) That would be awesome! (laughs) Because I'll take your no-prize explanation. Right. I still think it's damn lucky yeah. that they should interact with the unknown chemical. Yeah. But alright, but because they're Kryptonian kind of fake cells, because they didn't know he was from Krypton, mm. she, she suddenly gets heat vision would have been brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Implausible, because they weren't actually Kryptonian cells, but it would have been cool, mm-hmm. I thought. Did you like that one, then? Uh, not as much, but yeah. I just like, I like Bizarro. I don't mind Bizarro. I just didn't think he was particularly well served by that story. I like that he's called Bizarre in that story and not B-Zero. Yeah, like he was in Forever (laughs) Evil. Lana Lang takes the right-hand side of the cover to issue six, looking a little unsure of herself and downtrodden. On the left, Superman recoils as a ghost steps through his wall, a ghost we know to be Jor-El. What do you think of that one? I kind of like it. I like that one. It reminds me of... Did John Byrne do the... It's not fa- is it the Phantom Zone in this? Yeah. The Phantom Zone miniseries. And there's a cover of that where he's surrounded by the ghosts of Zod in them, isn't there? Yes, that's Gene Colan, I think. Right, well, it's, it reminded me of that. Right, or is that an issue with DC Comics Presents? I, may have been... I know the one you mean. Yeah. I know the one you're speaking of. The Haunting. Clark arrives back home in Smallville for a brief visit with his folks. The evening is full of chit-chat and Jonathan not telling Clark something, but at night Clark finds sleep eludes him and nips down for a midnight snack. His scoffing of rhubarb pie is interrupted by a ghostly figure, the spectre of Jarrell, who touches Clark, not like that, and suddenly he is on Krypton. His out-of-body experience is interrupted by Lana, who apparently wanders around the Kent farm in the wee hours, moping about how Clark ruined her life when he told her all about her powers and how he planned to save the world. Lana, who had visions of baby Kents in her future, made it all about her and spent ten years following Clark around in a superhero version of Play Misty for Me. Recently, she returned and finally got on with her life because Superman can't belong to one woman. He belongs to the world. Superman ponders all this the next day as he takes off to look at the birthing matrix that brought him to Earth. He's shocked to see it's gone, but that ghost is back. Jonathan Kent followed Clark, concerned about him, and seeing the ghost has Superman doubled over, Jonathan smacks it with a spade, causing it to short-circuit and vanish. 
Superman flies off around the Earth to clear his thoughts, and as he makes sense of the jumble of data placed in his head by the ghost, he decides none of it matters. Who gives a shit about Krypton? He was born on Earth, and that's all that matters to this Superman. The end. Yeah. It was. <laughs> it was, yes. Excellent splash page. Superman swooping over the camera like a star destroyer is graceful, elegant. Love that he's holding the cape. Yeah. Absolutely love that. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Martha's face when she elbows Jonathan in the ribs to tell him to not talk about Lana. The first says, I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing happened. I didn't just break your dad's ribs. That didn't happen. No How's your day Rhubarb pie. <laughs> If he'd have uh, <laughs> crashed the car because of Martha hitting it, <laughs> that would be funny. Clark still writes letters home. No email, no mm. text. It's a sign of the times, as Prince once said. This is only the late 80s as well. Yeah. Isn't it? It's not really that long ago. If Clark doesn't get tired and doesn't really need to sleep, he must have been a nightmare as a baby. Yeah. Mustn't he? Yeah. God, do you think they had to take it in turns who stayed up all night with him? Maybe, yeah. Martha stayed up all night on Monday, <laughs> Jonathan on Tuesday, Martha on Wednesday, etc, etc. But Martha always had to cut dinner. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how it works on the homestead, boy. <laughs> I, I laughed out loud at the line, Mar and Pa thought I may be Russian. <laughs> That was hysterically funny. Like the worst thing he could possibly have been in 1986 was Russian. It probably was. Well, yeah, from a cultural standpoint, I yeah. actually understood it and got it. But it kind of makes Superman a bit of a bigot. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> I really did genuinely laugh at that. I could have been a Russian. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> like having cooties. <laughs> What I want to know about this is what did Jarrell do when he touched Clark? Because he interacts with his mum. So he couldn't have given him visions. He must have actually made him travel through time and space. What, when he when he ends up on Krypton? Yeah. Um, Unless he had a mental link. I interpret it as a mental link, yeah. I interpreted it as he has mentally put Clark in a position where he, he experiences Krypton in some way. It's one of those things that he, he doesn't bother explaining but there are other stuff that he harps on about like he wasn't born on Earth. Yeah. Which he bangs you over the head with at least twice in this issue. Yeah. But yeah this wasn't explained. It's not like the crystals in Superman 2 is it? No. It's, there's none of that. So of the orb in Lois and Clark that he finds that explains yeah. him his, his origins. It is a bit woolly exactly what's happened to him here. And they don't explain about the hauntings either? No. Is the is the ghost of Jarrell looking for Clark and is assuming that Jonathan Kent is that? Yeah. But then wouldn't they have noticed? Possibly, but they wouldn't know what Jarrell looks like. But either way, the second time that he touches him on page sixteen, he doesn't have that Krypton memory flash, does he? No. So yeah, um, well, what's creating him, and why does it disappear when Jarrell hit, when Jonathan hits him with the spade? Yeah, why has the ghost of Jarrell chosen this moment to appear? You mean? Yeah. Why is it waited till Superman's twenty-eight years of age before it explains who he is? And in fact, Jonathan reacting the way he does from the point of view of the reader is a kind of stupid thing to do because we don't get an explanation now. 
No, Superman then has to give us an exposition overload on the last four pages, doesn't he? Yeah. Where he explains that I now know everything there is to know about Krypton. But I don't care. But I don't give a toss. I'll wipe my ass on the <laughs> arts of Ra. <laughs> Krypton is less than nothing to me. Ray, oh my tuckers. <laughs> you know, I could have done without six pages of Lana banging on about how Clark ruined her life as well. I, I actually really liked that scene. Did you? Yeah, in fact, that scene made this issue my second favourite issue. Really? Yeah. All the Lana stuff? Yeah. I, I don't know, I just kind of thought it was a little bit strange. No, I, I really quite liked it, because Clark didn't say goodbye to her. No, he just went and said, right, I'm going now. Yeah, he, he had that moment, and then just buggered off. Yeah, alright, fair enough. I'll give you that. I do like Burns' depiction of Krypton. The buildings are all like really beautiful spires and skyscrapers that touch the clouds. But the external landscape's just barren. Yeah. Like nobody could possibly live outside. They all live inside. It's all tech- technology. Yeah. It's like when was the last time these people went out? Essentially, they're your brother. <laughs> God, a civilization full of them. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to get in 20 years. I'll bet your money now. I can see far better now, having read a lot more of the gold and silver and bronze age of Superman, why this issue in particular was quite badly received by old school fans at the time. Superman essentially calls Krypton meaningless and unimportant, a slap in the face to fans who grew up with tales of returning to Krypton and Nightwing and Flamebird and all that great mythology that those stories gave us. As a kid, none of this bothered me. Bernard essentially made a Superman that was a carbon copy of the Christopher Reeve movies, with a dash of George Reeves in his interpretation of Clark Kent, and thrown in a little bit of moonlighting for good measure. Nowadays, I've got to be honest, this cavalier dismissal of Krypton irks me more than it did when I was 14. If we take Clark as being adopted, which he considers himself, and he suddenly found out about his real parents, surely he'd want to know a little bit about them. Yes, the Silver Age may have gone a little overboard, but surely some middle ground could have been found. Add to that, Superman's last line just doesn't make any sense. Krypton didn't make him Superman. Earth's yellow sun makes him Superman. On Krypton, he'd just been another boring cold fish with no superpowers. In fact, on any other planet, he wouldn't have been Superman either. Mm. Likewise, he's not human. He's Kryptonian. As Byrne himself pointed out in the last issue, sorry, his cellular structure is not that of an Earthman. It's not like emigrating to another country and applying for citizenship. He can't change his basic body chemistry. Yeah. So the line, it was Krypton that made me Superman, but it's Earth that makes me human, is bollocks, Hmm. isn't it? The Kents made him human, not Earth. If he'd have grown up with another set of parents other than the Kents, he may not be like he is. Hmm. And likewise, Krypton did not make him Superman. Earth makes him Superman. Our yellow sun makes him Superman. Which is why Jarrell sent him that. Yeah. So that line makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah within the context of its own story. To me, the the dismissal of Krypton, kind of... I like it in a sense that he's moving on. Yeah, I don't mind that every other issue isn't now going to be impining for how wonderful Krypton was. Yeah, but on the other side of that is... It, it's, it heavily reeks of John Byrne doing this because this is what John Byrne believes. Yeah, but DC didn't override him. No. I mean, ultimately, I don't have... I don't have an issue with a lot of this. Like, him not being an immigrant doesn't bother me. It just seems like it's 
it's not as important to anybody else other than John Byrne. Yeah. And the, de- com- the complete dismissal of Krypton bugs me more. Because mm. he's basically saying, that, yeah, I found out my real parents have, but who gives a toss? Yeah. So, you know. To me, I think he needs to know about Krypton, needs to have a life that is Kryptonian-inspired, but is shaped by the upbringing he was given by Jonathan. Well, I, I think that he's he's better for knowing where he came from and the people that he came from. Yeah. And all of that. I think he's, he's better for knowing that. Mm. I mean, yes, they went too far the other way in the Silver and Bronze Age, didn't they? Yeah. Where it's like, Krypton was this great place, and now home with me, it exists no more. This was too far the other way. Yeah. Krypton doesn't matter. And it's it's kind of like, it confused me a bit, and I didn't like it much. I still think Superman 1 and 2 kind of got that right. Mm. Although, even in that, the minute he discovers Jor-El, Christopher Reeve never thinks about Jonathan Kent ever again. No. Does he? That's why I like Superman 4, for all its faults. He goes back to Smallville, and he goes back to his the Kent farm and so Jonathan and Martha meant something to him yeah whereas in this Jonathan and Martha were everything and Jor-El didn't mean anything to him and mm. there has to be a nice little middle ground that they can reach and this wasn't it it's not that the issue's bad other than Burns' interpretation of Lana as a bit of a stalker who can't let Clark go this was quite an interesting take on the legend and worthy of its place in the Superman canon it's historically significant in that it was the first time such a ground zero reboot of a major character was attempted, a legacy I'm sure Byrne now hates and it was an interesting take but it's only one take and now I find that good as parts of this are, it's sadly lacking in other areas In many ways, Smallville took all the disparate elements of the Superman legend, including the best parts of this era, and did a much better job of making a coherent and respectful mythology than anything the comics have done. Which is weird when you think about it. Mm. Smallville lasted far too long, but it, it did a better job of blending it all into one cohesive narrative. Even the bits that weren't that good. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 strange that that Smallville did a better job of it. Back when I was a kid, this was Superman. Now it's just a Superman. Art-wise, it can't be faulted. Nobody draws Superman in flight better than Byrne, and his capage is magnificent. It's just that the sum isn't as good as its parts. Mm. What did you think? I really liked it. It. To my memory, this was probably the first Superman origin I read. It probably was. I read this years ago. Yeah. To the point where, when I stayed over at Nell and Grandad's and I used to do drawings and I used to make my own little comics, I just just ripped this off. Did you? Yeah. So maybe it worked for the next generation, then. Yeah. I I remember really enjoying this, and I still did really enjoy it. Okay. I really enjoyed it. It's just there was more niggles this time. Yeah, now I'm, I'm, well, older than I was when I read it. (laughs) Now that you're not the, oh, 14-year-old that you were when we started the show. Now that I'm not, what, four (laughs) when I read it. Yeah. uh, There is a lot more of it, and knowing more about John Byrne as as a person and a writer, I can see what's him. Yeah, more than the character. The character, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I still think it, it holds up as its own origin and must have done for this to carry on into other origins. Yeah, this origin lasted 20 years. And like you said, parts of this are still being cannibalised. Yeah. Man of Steel took an awful lot of John Byrne's Krypton, mm. didn't it? Russell Crowe was a bit more 
energetic than this guy. Yeah. Still. Uh, there's not really a lot of good adverts in this one. Superman, the greatest hero in comics, uh, now by the greatest creators in comics, is an advert for Superman 1, Action Comics, and Adventures of Superman, whatever issues they were post-crisis. We've covered that issue of Superman. We have covered that issue of Superman, and very soon now we will be covering one of those. Ah. Mm, there's a little tease. Yeah. And in the middle of this, there's a little... Lovely little pull-out advert for George Perez's Wonder Woman. Mm. First the Dark Knight, then the Man of Steel. Now DC does it again. George Perez, Greg Potter and Bruce Patterson introduced the new Wonder Woman. That's pretty nice. Very lovely, isn't it? Yeah, we've like, got those three trades on there. I think George Perez and Phil Jimenez are the definitive Wonder Woman artists. Fair enough. Not going to get an argument from me. I'd say they're better than Adam Hughes. You think? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the the definitive. I just think Adam Hughes is good at it. Yeah, mm. yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, that was it. That's episode two hundred. Do you want us? And the very end of the show. This is the point where we got shot. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then at the last minute we get reprieved, so we go into limbo for a bit. Yeah, yeah. and then we just suddenly wake up and everything's fine. We get pulled back because we've not finished our. We've job not yet. finished quite. We've got Higgins there going. I say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Magnum, yeah. and we'll come back to life quantum leaping into other bodies we will quantum leap into other bodies yeah so we've got the letter here from Senior Demanza <laughs> he doesn't believe in email apparently the small print says we're not allowed to quit until he says we can quit okay until he's so, worked us to the bone so next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics 1980 <laughs> just you're riding in on our hoverbikes hover <laughs> yeah. the Galactica has now found Earth Demanza please 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 for Christmas <laughs> we're going to take that literally five weeks the 1980s but it's a little bit different mm. than what we've done with the others so we hope you will join us and here's to the next well at least next 50 yeah and we'll see what happens uh-huh. thank you for joining us for 200 episodes we hope you'll be around next week for the next one bye bye goodbye Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this.